Hall wears his tag belt and carries Nash and carries Nash's. Sorry. <laughs> Holy crap. He's, no, he's so strong. <laughs> wow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good-old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and if you cut my co-host Alec Pridgen in half, he'd, well, he'd bleed to death, probably. That's that's a true statement. A graphic <laughs> and also a true statement, yes. I mean, it is October, so I ah, true. had to work in something gory and, and scary. <laughs> I mean, by Star Wars rules, you can sort of put them back together with like a piece of metal that it yeah. to uh, Darth, Darth Maul. Maul. So, right. yeah, yeah, you got yeah, better. Yeah. So. yeah, I'm not sure we want to judge our narrative consistency by the uh, uh, rules of the prequel trilogy era. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? Uh, it's going, going good, going good. Well, tonight we are taking a look at the very non-Halloween Bash at the Beach 1997. Hollywood Hogan and Dennis Rodman crash the beach. Maybe next time take proper beach piloting lessons before you take it out for a spin, guys. Jeez. Yeah, drunk piloting is not good. Even at the <laughs> end of the beach. I mean, the sand is its obviously softer than, you know, a field, but still. <laughs> I wouldn't be aiming for the sand. Yeah. Bash of the Beach 1997 was held on July 13th, 1997 at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida, in front of 7,851 fans, of which 6,354 paid. That's recorded as a sellout. We have about 450 less fans in attendance than last year, but still close enough, I guess. Bash of the Beach 1997 earned 250,000 pay-per-view buys, which is actually better than the prior year. Oh. It's not surprising that they'd be doing well right now, of course, since, since we're well into the super hot NWO angle at this point. Absolutely, yeah. So we're back in the same arena, but will the show be just as good? To find out, let's go to the ring. All right. Listen up, Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman have signed over the contract. When I laid unconscious, you spray painted me. You slapped me. Our opening video package sets up the main event, The Giant and Lex Luger versus Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman. Gotta be honest, after seeing Randy Savage unable to get a decent match out of Rodman back on the Road Wild series, I didn't hold out a lot of hope for this match. On the plus side, it is a tag match yes. that does limit and sort of cordon him off there, so hopefully that makes it better. Yeah. The video package is short, but does a perfectly acceptable job of at least showing the gist of what's going on and why. 
I'm trying to figure out why why does giant either sound distorted or is distorted? Why? Like, what's the effect of that when he's talking? It feels like they've got some kind of weird, like, slight filter on the audio. Um, so just off a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're trying to, like, do something for dramatic emphasis or what. It's just there enough that you actually notice it instead of it being subtle. If that made that was like the most backwards way I could possibly have stated that, but I think you got my point. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, a, a cool effect you wanted to have it there and people just mm-hmm. just sort of take it in, whereas this one's is a little distracting because the first thing I hear is that weird distortion. I'm like, what's going on? Like, are the speakers off? That's what yeah. I thought when we first watched this. So like, uh, something on like the streaming off somehow. Like it's, but then everyone else had normal, so clearly that's not it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show as we get shots of the beach-themed stage setup, which, if you can see it through the copious fireworks and smoke from said fireworks, is quite similar to the prior year. Mm-hmm. Glad to see that, of course. I definitely prefer the elaborate sets. Yes. It's good to see that the lifeguard stands survive the Nasty Boys versus the public enemy match. I mean, if someone went swimming, they need someone to watch over, right? <laughs> I, I so wanted to go into the Baywatch theme there, but I held, my, I held back. I held back. <laughs> I will say it's two shows in a row with the lifeguard stand, but no follow-up lifeguard match from 1995 show. That's true. That's interesting, because you'd have a perfect opportunity. They could just put that next to the ring. Yeah. And when someone fell out, someone could like dive dramatically off the stand and run in slow motion at them. You know? Yeah. I could be wrong in this, remembering partly wrong, you know, that's how it happens. But I have a vague memory of during the guest host era of Raw, they had David Hasselhoff on the show. At some point, it's like 2009. I feel like you're right on that. Yeah, and they had they had something like they called it a lifeguard match. Like they had they actually did they have them like sit in a lifeguard stand next to the ring, like we're talking about. It's like in the same spot where the like the front steps were, the terrible, dangerous front steps they used to have for the ring. That's that's either correct or a wonderful shared hallucination. Okay. <laughs> Tony oversells the main event, proclaiming it one of the biggest wrestling matches in the history of our sport. Uh, getting getting in early on that uh, in the history of our sport line that he likes to turn to in the later days. Yes, is he like paid? But every time he says that specifically, he like, should be. So here's an, here's an extra fifty for great. You it's know, his version of buffers, uh, ready to rumble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he didn't license that out for like what forty million dollars, some crazy number that he sold. Yeah, yeah. to our game license. Tony and co-host Bobby the Brain Heenan and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes are dressed more casually than last year with Tony and Heenan in Hawaiian shirts, and Tony and Dusty wearing lays. Dusty, oddly, is otherwise dressed all in black. Honestly, if I had to pick one of these three to be the most formally dressed, it would not have been Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, right? Tony asks Heenan who he thinks will be DDP's tag team partner in his match against the NWO's Randy Savage and Scott Hall. Heenan says he's asked a lot of people if they're the partner, and they won't answer. Tony asks Dusty about the main event, and Dusty says the event has a lot of media attention, but wonders if Rodman will be as good in the ring as he is on the court. He suggests that if Rodman does a bad job, the NWO could end somehow. Yeah, it's really weird nebulous logic there. <laughs> yeah. You know, a second thought, this one tag match didn't go right. I, I, I'm just done with this whole takeover the company thing. Okay, I, could, I can maybe give one explanation. The NWO is kind of united under the leadership of Hulk Hogan as their like commander and uh, and inspirational leader and and such yes. uh, and dictator. 
Hogan presumably was heavily involved in like wanting to work with Dennis Rodman and bring him in and pal around with him and all that sort of stuff. Right, sure. So if that directly leads to the NWO's humiliation, then I could see a storyline going where that starts the breakup because people are like, oh, you keep making bad decisions. Yeah, sadly, we're, you know. we're like a year out from that actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Not of a Rodman, but... It would have been funny if they just referred back to this as part of that angle, so Dusty somehow ended up right. That would have been nice, yeah. Tony gives us a let's go to the ring as hey. we head to our first match. Nice. Let's go to the ring, the first battle of nine tonight at Bash at the Beach. So our first match is Wrath and Mortis with James Vandenberg versus Glacier and Ernest the Cat Miller. The referee for this one is Jimmy Jett. And Mike Tanay will be joining the commentary team for this one. After Glacier had been going around being people being undefeated and all, they suddenly brought in Mortis, who they referred to as the skeleton in his closet. So, of course, he's dressed as an actual skeleton, because Celty is not this company's strong suit. To be fair, it's a very cool outfit. Oh, no, it is, absolutely. That wasn't going well enough, I guess. He didn't thoroughly defeat Glacier for whatever past sins he must have done to Vandenberg and Mortis. By the way, if you ever want an actual answer to what what history they have, you'd never get it. <laughs> they never actually wrote one, clearly. Yeah, yeah. They just hint at it forever, and then they give up on Glacier completely and just don't even talk about it ever again. It's always been interesting to me that they didn't have Mortis dress in yellow, because Glacier is clearly meant to be Sub-Zero. Yes, oh, from I Mortal, see. From Mortal Kombat. So, and Mortis is a skeleton guy, and, yeah. and Glacier's mortal enemy, so clearly he should be themed off of Scorpion. But maybe they figured that will be just a touch too much, and yes. we'll get sued for it. So he's clearly Scorpion, but he's in the green that's more like Reptile. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ironically, Wrath is actually the most connected to Mortal Kombat. Of course, guest starring on Mortal Kombat Conquest. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as Ernest Miller goes, this is funny, because I don't know if it's a, a shared idea, or you know, coincidental, or... It is, you know, someone cribbing their homework from each other. But WBF had a thing where Team Canada, the, you know, the evil Brightheart and his stable, were beating up, I think, the Patriot and other people. And suddenly a large, muscular, karate-knowing fan run to the ring fights them off. So that turned out to be Steve Blackman. Right. We basically get the exact same thing here, like, four months earlier, with Ernest Miller. Ernest Miller is in the audience. They don't really mention him until suddenly he hops the barricade, runs in, and starts kicking Wrath and Mortis. To defend Glacier. And they go, oh, of course, it's Ernest Miller. You know, and they act like everyone knows who Ernest Miller was. Of course, they don't. I mean, if you follow competitive karate, you might have known who he was at the time, but it wasn't exactly... Yeah. It's not like Chuck Norris ran in and saved the day, so... Right, right, yeah. To be fair to them, at least he is a competitive karate fighter that has been quite successful. So I know part of the reason he's here is, you know, he's a karate instructor that Eric Bischoff knows, but... At least that's not his whole story. He just—he actually is a karate champion. Correct. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not like the dentist that becomes fake Bill Lugosi in Plan Knife Mar Space just because right. he happens to be the dentist for the director. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so now Ernest Miller and Glacier are a tag team. They give him some warm-up on the go-home nitro and keep talking about the vague, ominous story and history between Rath Mortis and Vandenberg and Glacier. Mortis, Wrath, and Vandenberg are out first in intimidating red lighting. Mortis looks like a cartoon supervillain. Wrath hmm. looks like he got half-dressed up as a cartoon supervillain, but forgot part of the outfit. 
He's got a creepy staff, and he's got a Mortal Kombat-looking kind of mask and a robe, but under the robe, he just has very normal-looking wrestling uh, tights. It doesn't have, like, the comic book villain kind of design that Mortises do. It really has the feel of, like, the two roommates go into a Halloween party, and one guy's, like, super into Halloween. He's got his costume. Yeah. He's got, you know, like, the wings that go up and down, and he's made a costume for his friend. He's like, all right, I'll wear it, but I'm wearing my black t-shirt or this and my regular jeans. Yes. It's <laughs> so, like, if I get if feel embarrassed, I'll take it off. <laughs> Literally, the first sound you hear, the first song you hear on here, which is the Wrath and Bordis combined theme, I believe, is clearly them doing Dr. Feelgood. Yeah, I can I can hear it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the very end of Tony's Let's Cut the Ring, when you put it in there, you'll hear that just start. <laughs> Literally, I'm like, the Dr. Feelgood. They didn't even try to cover that one. DP's in the back going, I don't know, I think your song is too similar. <laughs> Glacier and Ernest Miller are out next to cool blue light and lasers. And of course, Glacier really looks like Mortal Kombat Sub-Zero, as was the intent. Yes. Miller, at the moment, is a much more serious character than he'll later become, with no sign of the dancing James Brown-inspired gimmick. He's just a karate dude right now. I do kind of like his sort of leopard print theme going throughout. I did like that. They, they at least gave him something that suggested the cat. Yes. So he's, he's not completely without character. It's just that he's not the, uh, the fully developed the cat that you'll later get. Mortis and Wrath ambush Cat and Glacier, and Wrath and Cat end up outside. Glacier is uncharacteristically aggressive in the early going, overwhelming Mortis, and distracts a charging Wrath to allow Cat to springboard in and kick him out of the ring. Cat in for a two-count off a jumping spin kick, so Mortis tags Wrath. Tanae oddly builds Cat up by going over his football history rather than his, you know, legitimate martial arts history, which would be somewhat more relevant. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah, maybe it's like subliminally uh, a push for the whole Rodman. You know, he played basketball. He could yeah, play yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a, that could be poorly coincidental, but that could be a theory. <laughs> Cat lands rapid kicks, but can't take Wrath down, so he tags Glacier. But Wrath runs them into each other. But when he turns his back, they double drop kick him for two. A mortis distraction gets Glacier scissors kicked hard. As Heenan notes that Glacier is currently undefeated. Mortis and Wrath trade off against Glacier, manipulating Cat into distracting the ref so they can kick a chair into Glacier. They get multiple two counts, including a double team powerbomb and neckbreaker. Glacier dodges a Mortis moonsault, but Wrath stops the tag by clubbing Cat off the apron. But an angry Cat springs in anyway and levels Mortis and Wrath with rapid kicks and some very nice spin kicks. Wrath and Cat end up outside, and Glacier DDTs Mortis but Vandenberg puts a chain on Mortis's boot before putting that very boot on the ropes. No worries, as Jet is oblivious. Yes. Glacier sidekicks Vandenberg, but that leaves him open for a Mortis chain-assisted sidekick for the three-count and the win. Tanae notes that Glacier is no longer unbeaten. Cat checks on Glacier and poses like he's screaming, No! to the sky in a big morning hero moment. Yes, that's very good. We finally busted that block of ice, Vandenberg notes, adding that when you stick your nose in our business, we rip it from your face and shove it down your throat. That would be a very weird Mortal Kombat fatality. That would be, yeah. Interestingly, we get a different theme for Mortis and Wrath's victory than for their entrance. Huh, I didn't catch that. The entrance music was like that generic 
rock, like you said, uh, you know, Dr. Feelgood ripoff. Yeah. But the post-match sounds more like a pipe organ with a beat. Oh, yes, true. It must be public domain, as I'm 85% sure that I heard it in the WarioWare game's block tower mode. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned some of that big fan very familiar as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe the this pipe organ music is Mortis' theme, which would make sense. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. And the first one is Wrath's theme. Yeah. Or alternately, one of these is Vandenberg's theme, although I can't imagine he has his own theme. You know, he only managed these two guys, so. But it's possible. They they spent the money and gave him his own theme music, too. Or just like the general faction theme or something like that. True, yeah. Mortis still has his own because he was the first one. That's possible as well, yeah. Yeah. And Mortis is the one that gets the pin, so. True. Thoughts on this one? I thought this was a decent to good match. It's not a great one, for sure. To be fair, you have Miller, who's still fairly early in his career. He hasn't quite gone in the I'm a karate guy who's also a wrestler thing. He nailed the karate stuff. Given his background, it shouldn't be surprised, but it's nice to see that. You know, occasionally they'll bring a boxer in to work a thing, and they're suddenly not good at boxing, which is kind of funny. So at least he kept that. Yeah, it can be very hard to learn to do a move that you are used to doing full contact in a legitimate sport uh, and do that faked, fake it and not actually hurt a guy. Sometimes guys can end up like pulling it too much sure. or or getting so concentrated on like, oh, I don't want to hurt this guy that it ends up looking faker from them than right. it would from someone who didn't know how to do it in the first place. They sort of get in their own head and they their timing will be off or the, yeah. Yeah, the range will be off. You know, absolutely. And, and I think, yeah, definitely credit to Ernest Miller here. He does a very good job of working his kicks into a performance. Yeah, the only thing he doesn't quite re- nail really well is that first movie does where he hops in the ring. The that's springboard impressive. one, yeah. Yeah, that part's impressive, but he doesn't really do like a strong kick. He kind of just like taps him. Yeah. Um. Here's something I'm curious about. Do you think the fact that he is a karate instructor after his competition work might have made him better at doing the worked kicks? Because you'd need to be able to, okay. to, to do work with your students without actually hurting them? That's Yeah, that seems logical, honestly. That's I'd never had thought of that before, but that, that would make sense to me. He spends a lot more time doing sparring or yeah. you know, showing how to do kicks. What you see with Ken, Ken Shamrock. Shamrock. Yeah. yeah. Goes, going straight from fighting into wrestling. Poor Vader knows full well what happens if he doesn't <laughs> hold that stuff. For me, the story of this match is that there's four guys really trying to sort of show up. They're like, look, we're on the opening match on this big show. Here's all this media attention because of Rodman. And of course, TV's doing well well as well. So you're going to get a high audience no matter what. But it feels like so much of this match is Mortis. Even literally that powerbomb neckbreaker one is one Candy would use with Raven like mm-hmm. six months from now or a year later from now. So a lot of this feels like he really, the DGP style really out of the match, came up with these complicated bits. And obviously, he's not the only one doing them, so credit to Brath, for instance, his sort of rolling die off the apron is actually nicer than I expected it to be. The only downside, I think, is that I think they're trying to work a little more complicated than some of them are used to. So there's bits like when they got to set him up for a move, they set him down and they realize, oh, he got to turn him like to the left or the right, for instance, they sort of reposition or they get reposition themselves for a move. Mm-hmm. Like when Wrath does his slink the across the rope. middle rope, the second yeah. rope, yeah, elbow. That goes fairly slowly. You can see him sort of aiming and positioning himself a bit, which is a wrestling thing where he's obviously going to miss, but at the same time, it feels like he's going, okay, what, what did they tell me to do? Like he's trying to think about what 
Kanan yeah. was telling him to do, like, for Dangle to go at everything. And and to be fair, he's a big guy to be doing that move, so sure. I, I can imagine a lot of it is concentrate on don't slip, don't slip, don't slip, oh, don't sure. slip as well, so. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's not to say that they really mess anything up. It's just, you can tell they're, they're sort of positioning, getting ready for the next spot, whereas they don't quite have the transitions as down as well as, like, DDP does, yeah. for instance. And that comes with experience. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the finish. I like that even the commentators point out the oddities of the finish. Okay, so Mortis is down. He's been hit at the DET. His foot's under the bottom rope. So Vanderman takes this chance to put the chain around him and then put it on the top rope as opposed to just leaving it under the bottom rope, which would also cause a rope break. Yes. And in fact, what he does by putting it on the top rope... or not the rope, <laughs> That'd be really flexible. Sorry. True, but as yeah. I put him on the bottom rope is it makes the ref look at his foot more, rather than just the mm-hmm. position of his foot. And that means the ref has to go, huh, did he always have a chain on his foot? Eh, oh well. <laughs> this is the same ref who can't hear the chair being kicked as well. Yes. There's some serious problems. We really need a wellness check with some of these refs in WCW at this time. And I'm still not quite clear how putting a single like loop of chain on your foot, kicking a guy in the chest, would knock them out. I know they could feel good, but I don't... It's have depleted that... uranium, so... Oh, okay. guess <laughs> <laughs> You can tell they are trying to do more complicated stuff and mm-hmm. really show up. They don't really botch, it's just timing's a little slower and there's this repositioning a bit. But overall, it's still a pretty good match. Yeah, I'm, I'm in general agreement. I was surprised at how good this was. Everybody involved worked really hard, and while it wasn't as fast as some of the cruiserweight openers we get, it still had a quick pace and it kept moving. I liked Cap better here than in some of his later stuff, actually. His kicks looked really good, and he hit his spots pretty smoothly overall, though there's a couple of moments where he briefly looks a bit confused. Yeah. Like you said, he's not very experienced in the ring at this point. Both teams have good teamwork, including some very nice double-team moves. Like you said, the ending's a tad awkward, especially Vandenberg calling the ref's attention to the very boot he has just put a weapon on, which, <laughs> yeah. which should have caused an immediate DQ. <laughs> yeah, right. But otherwise, it goes fine. I maybe would have considered swapping this with match two or four for the opener, mm. but this was quite fun and did a good enough job of getting the crowd going. Yeah, I agree with that. Fortunately, both teams are absent from the next show, which, of course, we've already covered, which is uh, Road Wild 97. But to their credit, Wrath and Mortis will be separated for the most part from the whole Earth Noir Glacier thing that kind of dropping this, not abruptly, but they're sort of easing it out. So come the very next show, which is Fall Brawl, they're put in position to actually be challenging for titles, so at least they're not disappearing off the face of the Earth, which is nice. Okay. They're getting rewarded from booking here. So Earth Miller, for the most part, hasn't wrestled a lot post-WB, what he briefly worked. But he came out of retirement in 2018, actually, to team up with Bullet Barb Armstrong, the father, of course, of Bird Dog Jesse James and Brad Armstrong and other people from the clan, and Glacier. Oh, interesting. He also teamed up with Haku and, fittingly enough, Ice Train <laughs> in 2019. Interesting. We cut to DDP being interviewed as part of a chat on the WCW website. A user named I Love Cows <laughs> asked who DDP's mystery partner will be in his match against the NWO. I was about to make a joke about the early days of the internet, but really, usernames have not improved. No. DDP ruthlessly mocks the username and claims his partner will be Diamond Dallas Dad, his father. 
Page is very funny here, but admittedly probably doesn't do wonders for Tony's attempts to pitch the opportunity to talk to wrestlers online. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, come online and be openly mocked by our stars. I mean, there's some people, to be fair, they might actually enjoy that. That's true, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> but if your username is called out and made fun of, and you end up on pay-per-view broadcast, that's probably a mixed blessing. Yeah. Heenan proposes torturing Page for information and suggests that Tony has been similarly grilled before. Tony agrees that he has. Sh- should we be calling the FBI? Yeah, what's uh, what's going on there? Did someone cut a hole in the bottom of your chair or something? Should we be worried about this? Dusty seems to agree, though really he might just be amused by the word grilled. I can't tell for sure. <laughs> that's, that's fair, yeah. <laughs> Our second match is Ultimo Dragon, repeatedly called Ultimate Dragon because what are names anyway? Versus Chris Jericho for Jericho's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis, and Mike Tanay is still here. So, two weeks earlier, they had a special house show event where Jericho won the title from six. They later broadcast this, weirdly enough, as a as Saturday Nitro. So even in 1997, they were adding shows that people weren't asking for. <laughs> I don't know if they were going to have six in a match like this, and they changed their plans abruptly. Having a win at a house show feels like you changed plans abruptly. So I don't know if they were playing something else with Six and Dragon, but in this case, it's just a match between two guys. Okay. Dragon's in his light blue outfit tonight. His very loud pyro seems to surprise him. <laughs> Jericho has his wonderful teen movie music, which yes. starts twice. On the ball tonight, production crew. <laughs> yeah, right? Matt wrestling to start, and each lands on their feet off of monkey flips. They trade arm drags, then block each other's spin kicks and drop kicks with their own. Jericho gets caught by Dragon's handstand kick in the corner, and Dragon lands monster kicks and works the neck, but Jericho double power bombs him with shocking ease, then gets two counts with a senton, stalling vertical suplex, an impressive corner flip moonsault, and the tiger driver. Jericho goes for a superplex, but Dragon blocks so Jericho tries drop-kicking him off the turnbuckle. Dragon kind of drops off early, so Tony nicely covers by claiming that he dodged. Maybe jumping all the way to the floor is not your best dodge attempt, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair he, play to cover, uh, yeah. Yeah, he just clearly, like, the kick clearly misses, so he can't claim he got hit. Yeah. So he does his best with it, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, fair play. Jericho springboard crossbody to Dragon. Dragon gets his boots up on a second-rope elbow, but Jericho shoves him out of the ring on a top-rope Frankensteiner attempt. Heenan justifiably asks if that's a DQ, and Tony ignores him because there's no way he's accounting for WCW's stupid rules. Yes. Jericho tries a splash, but Dragon drop-kicks him in midair. Multiple counters lead to Dragon's acai moonsault, and Dragon has totally won the kids in the crowd over. He is their new superhero. (laughs) Yeah. Dragon back in, and Jericho barely makes it before 10, with really impressive timing. Mm-hmm. He's literally flat on his back on the floor mats at nine and is in the ring just as 10 is about to be counted. What I like that the commentators, with Heenan especially, plays it as he was trying to get as much rest time as he could. Yeah, really good. Dragon gets two counts with a Hurricane Rana and La Magistral Cradle off of Jericho's own encounter to the handspring elbow, and they trade two counts off a of Jericho roll-up. Jericho gets two with the Lion Salt. Frustrated, he tries again, but Dragon drop kicks him in midair. Mm. 
Jericho blocks the tiger suplex and counters the dragon sleeper with a knee to the face. Dragon hits a moonsault. Jericho counters the tiger suplex with a tiger driver, but that's countered with a hurricane rana, but Jericho counters that with a victory roll for the three count and the win. <laughs> Quite a sequence to end that. Yeah, right? Jericho looks surprised that he won. After celebrating, he goes over to Dragon, and the two shake hands in respect. Thoughts on this one? I thought this was quite a strong competitive match between these two. I actually did do some research. They had wrestled about three times, I believe, over the years leading up to this, over in Mexico. I think once over in Japan as well. They actually have two more matches, I believe, uh, on main shows or pay-per-views after this as well. Yeah, you you can definitely tell from this match that these guys are used to each other already. They're very smooth together, and they work in a lot of complicated counters that build on some history. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, too, because we have an actual Lucha match later in the show, mm-hmm. but there's definitely there's a prevalent sort of Lucha feel of this match as well, Yeah, with the pacing, because there's less time for, like, stop and, you know, like, get a crowd to cheer, or, you know... Because no one plays it really plays a heel in this match. No. So you don't like hit a big move and you know get the crowd to boo you or anything. The pace is definitely like a Mexican wrestling match, which can be quite enjoyable as a lot of people like that. Yeah. The biggest point where they where they genuinely just stop and clearly wait for a reaction is after that counter, counter, counter simultaneous kicks sequence where yes. they pause and are like, okay, let's let the crowd realize that we're evenly matched. Mm-hmm. Which is a great sequence for proving that, I think. Uh, excellently done. Yeah. That's one of those spots that's really impressive a lot of the time, but there's a point where I got used so often. Yeah. It's a, it, came, it came a cliche. You kind of had to stop doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Just l- let it let it breathe a bit. But yeah, they, they, they have to do a good version of it here, though, I would say. So it, it's it's two-edged sword here, because on one hand, like I said, they, they tried some really complicated counters and sequences here. Unfortunately, that does lead to a few moments like the drop out of the ring stuff, you know, the spot with the drop kick. They don't quite go as well as they had hoped for. It's them mildly botching, you know, not a, there's no like real or bad mess ups, but also we're doing really complicated things. So it's not like mm-hmm. going back to the previous series, we had Mongo and Brian Adams who couldn't work <laughs> basic like clothesline <laughs> off a of run moves. Oh, that was still one of the worst. <laughs> yeah. So. Being fair to them, they they messed up a bit while doing really complicated spots, so mm-hmm. it's not as bad. And and in this one, not in a way that hurt the internal reality of the match. Right. Like, Tony was able to explain the few botches as, you know, something that realistically could have happened. No, that's fair, yeah. The only downside of this match, really, is that, for the most part, the crowd doesn't seem that excited about it. It's really disappointing with the, how much action is going on, and how well done it is that the crowd not popping more than you would hope. At a certain point in the match, the children in the audience have clearly been won over by Dragon and are cheering quite heavily for him. Right. But at one point early in the match, I think we even get like a We, we Want Sting chant. Yes, which, yes. Which, while that is prevalent during this time period, is probably not something you chant during the match that you're most interested in. Yeah. And this is a rare thing for me, but I feel like if they had found some way to have Six show up, like, don't have a screw fit, don't have a, you know, don't have a run energy queue or anything, but Maybe if Six like show up and try to interfere and get chased off or something, I think that would have given the, the crowd a little more engagement. Mm-hmm. Because as it is, it's a really good match between guys working a fast, complicated style. But as Jericho himself has noted, his character was so white meat and vanilla that so many people just didn't really connect to him. 
we felt artificially, you know, like AstroTurf. And so it's him and a guy, who, Dragon, who they've seen before, but he's not like a regular name that they go, oh, Dragon Tears, this guy's really good. There's not, not enough people do that. Mm-hmm. So it's two people they don't see mostly invested in, and maybe the guy they really want to see, you know, if they hate him, is six and he's not there. Having involved somehow, but without really ruining the match, I think would have gotten a crowd pop and then made a crowd go, oh, these guys are fighting just, you know, to spite this guy. He wants to get them, so maybe they have more investment. That's a thought. Yeah. Could have had a cool moment where, like, he tries to interfere and they just both team up and beat the crap out of him and he goes running off or something. So, yeah, that could be, that could be, like, he could, yeah. build, build up the fact that both of these are faces and neither one tries to take advantage. Yeah. Maybe he, he tries to form an alliance with Dragon. Dragon doesn't want that because he wants to win fairly and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would have helped the crowd reaction a bit, which is a shame because the match is really good. But they just don't yeah. care so much of it. I thought this was an excellent match with quite a lot of variety. From a strong mat work beginning to some great acrobatic counter sequences to some excellent aerial dives, these two put on quite a show. It really built up over the course of the match, and in the later match, the two ended up frequently countering moves that had been successfully used earlier, showing that they learned not just from prior fights, but from this very match. There are a few minor slips in this, but they pale in comparison to the massive number of complicated sequences that these guys nailed perfectly. Amazing match and very entertaining. Fittingly, exactly two weeks from this show, Jericho would lose the title to Alex Wright. It was on a regular Nitro this time, not a Saturday Nitro. Okay. He, of course, would get his rematch of Road Wild, a show we've already covered. On the other side, nine days after the show, Ultimate Dragon would beat William Regal. Or excuse me, he'd beat Steven Regal. I'm forever going to call him William Regal because I knew him first from WBF than WWE. Yeah, he would win the TV title off of Regal and go and defend it at Clash Champions 25. We cut to Mean Gene Okerlund, who says that he was out strolling on the beach earlier dressed in his current outfit, a tuxedo with lays. He seems to think it was weird that people gave him confused looks. Okay. Gene shells the hotline, claiming they might have news on who DDP's mystery partner is. 1-900-909-9900. Gene praises the crowd, and goes over to find one particular attendee, Raven, who is accompanied by Stevie Richards. Hey, there's the man I wanted to see. Oh my, look at this this man. If you could accompany me, this man, Raven, has been seen recently on two or three WCW telecasts. He's here, he's not affiliated as far as I know officially with World Championship Wrestling. Hi, pal. But Raven, you're here. There's speculation about Diamond Dallas Page's partner, and I'm certain you could probably shed a little light on it. Uh, don't mic to name me, pal. Something it Trust and hate and love and fate, and I don't understand. Social grace, the human race, confuse me. These words I speak bring forth a world of emotions. Emotions of dreams lost, dreams found, and dreams I'll never see. So it is written, so it shall come to pass. But the question is, will I or will I not be Diamond Dallas Page's partner? 
But isn't that the same question that I've been asked time and time again since my childhood? Isn't the question really, have I any dreams I'd like to sell? Quote the Raven, nevermore. Wait a minute, I ask you a straight question and you come up with this Edgar Allan Poe gibberish. Raven, I want something more. Hey, Gene. What, what, what are you doing here? No. <laughs> How you doing, Gene, Gene? I'm dancing doing very good. Yeah, the dancing machine. Hey, what about this, uh, what about this relationship between the two of you? Maybe you could shed a little light. Stevie Richards. You know what, Gino? You have this big, big question to ask my man, Raven, about being Diamond Dallas Page's mystery partner tonight. I do. Well, I got the scoop for you. Tell him about the announcement tomorrow night. Hey, wait a minute. Good God, he just cuffed him. I can't believe that. He just cuffed him. What kind of a shallow relationship is that? Treated him like a child. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about Gene's views on the treatment of children now. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Except for some jerk shining a laser pointer right in Gene's face, which happens a few times in the matches tonight as well. Oh, yeah. This was a really good intro to the Raven character. Mm -hmm. Raven does a good job with his confusing philosophical poetry, and Gene does a good job looking at first intrigued and then just completely confused, and at ignoring the aforementioned laser pointer. Yeah. And Stevie does a good job acting irritating and then getting punched in the face. <laughs> good segment overall. I really liked also uh, Gene about halfway through the bit with he and Stevie talking to each other. It seems to realize that the crowd might not yet be aware of Stevie either, so he makes sure to call him by his full name, uh, yes, quite with a lot of emphasis on it. <laughs> Good job by Gene there. <laughs> yeah, obviously, both these guys had been pretty big in ECW, but there's definitely some concern that their mainstream audience wouldn't necessarily know, oh, mm -hmm. that's Stevie Richard or Steven Richard, the way you want to call him. And obviously, definitely when they know who Raven is, because he's going to be a character going yeah. forward for the next few years. They definitely sold with this that Raven's appearance is a big deal. There's a lot of intrigue about how it's going to go. I think it's quite successful at, at building him up, even if you're not already aware of his time in ECW. You're like, okay, whoever this guy is, he's intriguing and being treated as, as important. I, I would not be shocked at all. I know this was the early days of the internet, but I would not be shocked at all if Raven's early appearances, especially here, led to people actually looking him up. Sure, yeah. You're going to find someone's uh, Angel Fire page and find yes. out about Raven. Oh my gosh, yes, GeoCities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting with Raven because he's definitely doing his sort of real deep but also nothing line. Which I feel like that's got to be from something. He he did, clearly didn't just it's, make it's, that up. That's got to be. I don't know what be. from, yeah. yeah. I, I wish I knew where that was from specifically. The cadence makes it sound like a song lyric. It definitely is a song lyric. It has to be, yeah. yeah. But he definitely gives you the vibe of someone that would just recite lines from the Sandman comic, but maybe not quite know how to do them properly, but, you know, here's how I would say it, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's like just the right amount of logical, but also ridiculous. He's not a joke character, so you right. it's not comedic that he's saying this, but at the same time, he's not so wise and all-knowing that you go, oh, man, I really, really want to believe this guy, because he's still ultimately a heel. Yeah. Raven is a character that needs to sound deep, but not actually necessarily be deep. Yeah. Ultimately, the idea of the character is that he is convinced that he's, you know, some kind of like savior character, but he's ultimately a selfish and pretty shallow person as a heel. Yeah. So 
yeah, I think it, they do a good job of of getting that where he's like, he's saying a bunch of things and they sound philosophical, but you're not really sure that they actually mean anything. And he ends up coming off whiny, which is exactly what they're going for, I think, with him. Yeah, he's one of the guys that knows Jim Morrison poetry and thinks that they are as wise, you know, and can sort of write line, you know, cryptic lines like, you know, the Doors lyrics. But ultimately, they really don't and they really mm-hmm. can't. So it definitely works there. It is funny, too, because um, as part of this buildup, when they're trying to build up the tag match, they have both him and Kurt Hennig come out at the end of Nitro. They sort of stand near the ring, and the NWO is sort of looking at him. There's a weird bit right before the show got off the air where Scott Hall, of all people, is like looking at Raven, who's standing there, going, like, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> like, I fully don't, I make no connection in my mind between the NWO and Raven, but apparently, at least at this point, Due to the whole DP story, it definitely is. That's funny, yeah. It's just a it's a stare down I never thought actually happened, but apparently did. <laughs> Our third match is the NWO, Masahiro Chono and the Great Buddha, versus the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott. The referee for this one is Mickey J, and Tanay has left the commentary team at this time. So the overarching story is that the NWO, in this case, the Outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, and occasionally Six, as we'll discuss later, are tag champions, but really don't want to fight the Steiners for them. So they're doing everything they can to either avoid a match or get out of the match quickly, so they're kind of doing everything they can to not have the match. So eventually, in the build to this, we get the official debut of the NWO Japan, which at this point is represented by Muda and Shona we see here. Tenzan is also part of the group as well. They would actually beat the Steiners in an upset match, of course, with some shenanigans involved because it's the NWO. So a bit later, the NWO would finally seem like they're going to give the Steiners a straight one-on-one match, one-on-one being a t- team, that is, a match for the titles. And said, so if you beat you know, beat the NWO on pay-per-view, you'll get a match. But then they attack them with the help of Muda and Shono, revealing that you actually have to beat them to get a title shot. Instead of say, you know, but your buff bag will to someone else. And typically use a team that, with their help, has already beaten the Steiners. It seems like a gimme now that there's no way the Steiners are going to get a towel shot, so that we're safe for another six months. NWOB team theme count one. We're in that era again, folks. <laughs> yeah. I think I said just when we were watching this originally, I'd be okay with the NWO theme being used with NWO Japan. If they got the same guy that does the random insults and talk, you know, over him, to do it in Japanese, <laughs> that same delivery, everything, just like just reading phonetic Japanese, would be so great. Chono has an awesome shiny trench coat. He does, and Muda does a better job of looking like a Mortal Kombat character than the guys from the first match who were intended to look like Mortal Kombat characters. That is very true. Yes, has a cool horned skull mask and a dragon on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Looks yeah, awesome. Very nice. It's very nice, yeah. We get the return of Crab Cam. <laughs> yes. The Steiners, fortunately, enter to Steinerized. <laughs> However, unfortunately, they are dressed in their plasticky red era outfits. Yeah, it's their weird, like, vinyl wrestling outfit with their big, shiny weight belts. Do not like this era of the Steiners outfits. Their overall look is fine, but just those those singlets look horrible. We're also seeing the first of the subtle transition for Scott Steiner, where his hair is still grown all along, but he's growing his goatee out. Yes. He's in the uh, halfway uh, stage between regular Scott Steiner and Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner. 
Chono and Muda ambush the Steiners, but the Steiners hit flying clotheslines and Steiner line them, so they roll out. A guy wearing what appears to be a Sid Vicious shirt, of all things, Mm -hmm. gets in Chono's face. Sid was actually in the WWF at this time, though he would soon leave it. I think it's actually in the next couple of weeks that he exits. It's pretty quickly, yeah. But he won't actually rejoin WCW until 1999. Muda and Scott start the match proper. Muda Land strikes and bounces along to a Muda chant from some in the crowd. But a Scott double underhook powerbomb and gorilla press slam send him rolling out to recover. Tag to Rick, and Muda stalls a bit, then tags Chono. Tony notes both Chono and Muda are former world champs. Chono repeatedly eye-breaks Rick and hits his Yakuza kick, but a suplex from Rick sends him out to argue with Sid Vicious Guy again. Muda and Scott back in, but Chono quickly double-teams, including a electric chair drop that I'm not entirely sure was intended. No. I think Chono actually meant to hold Scott on his shoulders for Muda to hit something, but Scott reeled while selling, and that kind of overbalanced Chono. Yeah, it, look, it looks like Chono just sort of had to go with it, because otherwise he's going to flip yeah. off his shoulders and he can't have that. So Yeah, he just yeah they recognized, oh, something's gone wrong, and they turn it quickly into the electric chair drop quite well. Yeah, it's a good improv- improvisation there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Example of the guy's experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Muda and Chono wear Scott down, including Muda's excellent handspring elbow and power drive elbow drop, but Scott gets a belly-to-belly superplex, then tags Rick for Steiner lines and a scary overhead belly-to-belly suplex to Muda. Mm -hmm. A less scary one to Chono follows, and Rick gets two with a diving bulldog to Muda. Everybody fights, and Rick and Chono roll out, about a half second before Scott belly-to-belly suplexes Muda right where Chono would have been. (laughs) (laughs) Muda top rope Frankensteiner on Scott, just to be insulting. Heenan gets himself in trouble cheering for Muda. Rick comes back and counters Muda's handspring elbow with what Tony calls a dragon suplex, but it looks more like a German suplex to me, for two as Chono saves. As the ref's getting Chono out, Scott Frankensteiner's Muda for two for Rick, but Chono pulls Jay away. Jay yells at Chono, and Chono actually begs for mercy. (laughs) Yeah. Scott hits a top rope DDT onto Muda off of Rick's shoulders and rolls out, leaving Rick to pin Muda for the three count and the win. Chono actually had a clear path to stop that, but just kind oh, of yeah. didn't. <laughs> yeah, Scott definitely runs in at the end to sort of face him down, but it would have been the six count, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah, I suspect what actually happened was Scott was supposed to be standing in the way, but he forgot and belatedly ran in. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or maybe uh, Chono was just that terrified of Mickey J. <laughs> I mean, they're both viable options, yeah. <laughs> Scott yells that Hall and Nash can't hide anymore. Thoughts on this? That was a good match. I will say the early bits, especially, have sort of an odd pacing to them. They definitely build up to the teams like really fighting each other a bit. It's also the first, might be the first of many matches where you get a big flurry at the beginning where you knock the heel around and they roll outside the ring and recover. It's a classic spot, but they do it like the same way in the same position like three times in the show. It's a little weird. Yeah. I think as a whole, they work well together. There's definitely some slight hiccups here and there, which is surprising. I feel like these guys have wrestled a bit over in Japan. Mm -hmm. They have a thing called the World Tag League in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And actually, 1996, Rick Steiner went to Japan, obviously, because they worked there a lot. This is the point where Scott's actually legit out with a back injury. So it's actually Rick Steiner and Muda as a tag team. That sounds like a cool tag team. That would be pretty sweet, yeah. 
Yeah, the thing that's really sad to me is there's odd bits of repetition, or like you're either adjusting for a spot or redoing a spot. Scott goes to that same corner, the heel corner, by the way, twice, and it backfires on him. And there's a bit where Chono runs up the ropes and sort of bumps into the Brick Steiner, and then he comes back second time and gets thrown over his head. And then late in the match, they actually do the same spot again where he runs at him and gets thrown over his shoulder. Hmm. Well, that was the first one is just sort of miscue. Like, he was too fast, or Rick wasn't ready, but something happens. That bump was like, oh, you didn't go. Okay, let's start back. I'll do it again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just weird that they're repeating spots in a match that, while it's not super long, it isn't also super short. So it's a little strange. That said, I'm glad the Steiners won. Because if they hadn't, then they would just be prolonging this whole story even more than they already have. Because again, it's been since January of this year, and we're in July now, with just finding ways to where the NWO don't defend the titles against the Steiners. So I'm glad they didn't try to like space that out to like Fall Brawl or you know Starcade or something. Yeah. As you know, it is funny that the finish involves the ref, of all people, scaring Chono into the corner and not interfering. In spite of the fact that Chono is the guy whose old gimmick is, I'm a big, tough Yakuza guy. Yes. In my big <laughs> coat. But this, this sort of doughy middle-aged looking ref, I gotta back off or he's gonna take me down. <laughs> Maybe it's like the anime cliche where there's the, the guy who looks like they can't fight and they're the strongest fighter in the world. Maybe he's convinced that's what real life is like. Mickey J is, is, has been holding back this entire time. He could be world champ in a heartbeat if he exactly, came out for yeah. a match, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Take down Hulk Hogan in a split second. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's a good theory. I will say, lastly, that their top rope DDT is scary, to say the least. To the credit, Scott and Muda do roll through nicely. Mm-hmm. So while there obviously is still impact, it's not like Rick drops back and it looks like Muda gets spiked. The rolling through definitely helped with that. Yeah, that's a terrifying move. I, I have definitely seen it go worse than it goes here. Like this looked like ultimately it ended up safe for them, but it's a scary move to watch. Mm-hmm. Like things go at angles that that are not comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Steiner things over the years that are like that. They just do some movie and are like, why would you think to do that? And who's who's agreeing to let you try this on them? Yes, yeah. You, you really want to know how they developed, in particular, like the Steiner screwdriver. Yes, exactly. Like, who who? I get that you're good at this now, but who was your first attempt? And yeah. are they still alive? Yeah. Well, like, there's, there's a spot that Scott used to do when he was a early single star. So like, you know, 1991, 92 even. Where he'd hold the guy like for the uh, followaway slam, he would just like do a standing moonsault and slam the guy down. I'm like, why are you doing that? That is terrifying. <laughs> yes, I can see why he stopped doing it, but the first time you see, it, like, whoa, what the hell? <laughs> that giant ball of muscle just backflipped and slammed a guy. <laughs> I thought this was a good, solid tag match, as you'd expect with these reliable performers. Good hard strikes, excellent suplexes, a few nice counters, and a great ending spot make for an entertaining contest. At the same time, I did find it a tad underwhelming. Chono Amuda, as you noted, Al, repeatedly roll out of the ring, slowing things down. Mm-hmm. And some of the best spots in the match, like Scott's double underhook powerbomb and Rick's catch of the handspring elbow, had already been done by Jericho and Dragon earlier in the evening. That's true, yeah. This is still a good, fun tag match, but I just feel like it could have been better. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're, like, if you, especially if you're, like, a real uh, strong style fan and you hear, oh, this match happens, 
you picture all these spots in your head, and you get a lot of them, and they're most part they're done really well. But yeah, there's just it's that little extra isn't there, whether it's pacing wise because they're playing NWO Japan, Muda and Chono, that now they have to do the Hogan playbook and roll out and do a little jog to get away from a, from a fight and everything. If you have no idea who these guys are and you just see it, I think your reaction to it is probably different than ours. Yes. If if this is your first or or at least an early experience with any of these guys, I think you're impressed and feel like you had a good match out of it. Mm-hmm. If you're used to these teams, then I think you expect a little more from them. But it's it's by no means a bad performance. No, no. I liked when Rick comes in, when he does his suplex to Chono. I like that he sort of gets him up off his feet, which is impressive given that Chono is a pretty big guy, especially mm-hmm. relative to Rick, up for a few seconds like it's the, the elevated bear hug. And then Chono like sort of begs off because he knows what's coming and then just gets thrown. <laughs> I like that in the match. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of good stuff like that, but yeah, the idea of these teams against each other you picture so much, and maybe you don't get all of it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the Steiners will finally get their world title shot against the uh, Outsiders, and we know how that goes if you watch our, or listen to our Road Wild show. Yes. Notably, they give Chono and Muda a nice bit of rebound by the feed a epic team on the following Nitro. They defeat the public enemy. <laughs> and, of course... As part of the NWO, they get involved in the Giants business part of his angle where he's fighting the NWO and various people at that one. There's a weird wrinkle to the whole NWO Japan angle. So curiously, the Great Muda is part of NWO Japan. However, they would pull an angle where Kiji Mudo, the actual guy, when he's not dressed up like the Great Muda, is actually against NWO Japan. <laughs> so he's got like a split personality. Apparently, yeah. Nice. <laughs> they go for like a year before non-face-painted Mudo eventually actually comes part of the group. It's very strange. <laughs> Back in February of this year, it's 2023, they held a big farewell show for Kiji Mudo, or the Great Mudo. They built a whole show around it, and he has his big retirement match against Setsuo and Naito. Masahiro Chono had actually been retired since, I think it's 2014. So what happened in the show is... Muda fittingly loses his final match, putting over Naito. Afterwards, he gets on the house mic and challenges Chono, who's been doing commentary for the show, because he's Muda's friend. He challenges him to come around the table and have one more match against him. And they do. They have one more match. Chono unretires for one match so he could have the final match against Great Muda. Hmm. The two of them actually debuted against each other in their very first matches in New Japan, uh, 1984. Okay. Wow. So they found a way to book in their career like that. That's that's very cool. Yeah. Our fourth match is Juventud Guerrera, Hector Garza, and Lismark Jr. versus Psychosis, Viano 4, and La Parca. So Al, I see your match of the night and MVP are decided. Mm-hmm. With Sonny Ono in a Lucha Libre six-man tag match. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. Heenan begs for Teneg to come back out as the competitors start entering. Guerrera, Garza, and Lismark, who looks much more awesome than his name suggests in a silver and blue superhero outfit, mm-hmm. are out first. Sonny Ono brings out Viano 4, 
Psychosis in Shadow Knight colors this time. Mm-hmm. And Laparka in a amazing mariachi outfit, complete <laughs> with sombrero that matches his skeleton duds. Yeah. Utterly ridiculous and amazingly awesome. <laughs> his jacket is nice as well. Yes. I like that. He, so he's wearing a full black and white skeleton bodysuit. Yes. Complete with hood and mask, of course. And he's then wearing a hat over his hood and mask and wearing a jacket over his full bodysuit. Yes. With proper he, branding on it, of course. He is sweating to death, I yes. would imagine, under there. Yes. Understandably, he takes that off very quickly as soon as he's in the, in the ring and just has the, the bodysuit and mask, which I'm sure are already hot enough. Yes, exactly. Tanae does indeed rejoin us and lets us know that this is under Lucha rules, so wrestlers can get in without a tag if their partner goes to the floor. We get a series of pairings to start. First, Lizmark and Psychosis that ends with the Garza flying arm drag and assisted Lizmark high angle dropkick. Then Viano 4 gets in and Garza hits a lot of acrobatic moves with 1970s kung fu movie noises, mm-hmm. including he and 4 obviously cooperatively rocking back and forth to get Garza to the top rope to flip 4 to the mat. Does look cool, though. It does, yes. Hina jokes that we need an air traffic controller rather than a ref for this. <laughs> it's not wrong. Guerrera and Parka in, and Guerrera hits head scissors and hurricanranas until Parka shoulder blocks him out of the air. Ow. Mm-hmm. Guerrera monkey flips Parka out, transitioning into a rana through the ropes, but Ono lands kicks until Guerrera dodges, and Ono accidentally kicks Parka. Ono produces a wad of cash to make it all better. Mm-hmm. Things do not improve for Parka as he holds Lizmark for psychosis, but Lizmark dodges, so Parka gets hit. Again, Parka holds Lizmark for four in psychosis, and Lizmark dodges, but Parka dodges! Ah! Parka and his buddies shove each other until Garza interjects with a top rope crossbody, then rolls away so four in psychosis, diving to help, land on Parka. Parka, you need better friends. Yeah. Guerrera sentence all three for two, for Garza, I think. There's kind of a pile of bodies there. Lismark, Guerrera, and Garza dropkick Parka, Four, and Psychosis out, then hit simultaneous suicide dives in an absolutely terrific shot. Mm-hmm. Psychosis, Four, and Parka attack Guerrera in their corner and get two with Psychosis's top rope reverse waist hurricanrana. I have no idea what it's called, and Tanae does not help me. <laughs> it's almost like the uh, Sunset Flip powerbomb kind of move. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very it's it's a cool move, but yeah, I have no idea what it's called. Varied two counts with an oddly slow Guerrera Hurricanrana, a Garza Moonsault Splash, and a Lismark Springboard Moonsault. Psychosis and Four whip Lismark and Garza at each other, but they dodge, so Psychosis and Four clothesline each other. Lismark and Garza put on the Star, basically simultaneous wishbone stretches to Four and Psychosis's legs, but Parka scoops up Guerrera and throws him hard into Lismark's face to break that up. It's a great spot. Garza kicks a charging psychosis, and somewhat improbably, sends him into a perfect double dropkick on Parka and Four. That's just <laughs> physics, Bob. I don't know what, what the issue you have. I miss Mythbusters. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, confused, claims Garza kicked his own partner to add force to the dropkick, and everyone else is too exhausted by the sheer number of moves to correct him. Yeah. Dodged swan dive splashes from Psychosis, Lismark, Four, Guerrera, and Parka. Guerrera goes for a superplex on Four, 
and Garza, Parka, and Psychosis all get involved, so Lismark dropkicks Parka and Psychosis, and Garza and Guerrera head scissor them both outside. Lismark gets a handspring moonsault on four for two. That's a confusing thing to say. Then sends him out, too, and everybody has a happy fun time doing complicated, beautiful dives out of the ring, ending with a Garza corkscrew plancha. Garza and Psychosis clothesline each other down, and suddenly, Viano 5 takes 4's place. They do have their respective Roman numerals on their outfits, but it'd be easy to miss in the melee. It's like on the lower left hand of the waist. Right. Well, I say that, and it's Roman numerals, so it's IV is switched out for V. Yeah, not the most different thing. It's not like if two had switched out for four. Yeah. You notice that. <laughs> Five gets two counts, also confusing, with a leg drop and clothesline to Garza, but accidentally clotheslines Psychosis after a Garza dodge. At least it wasn't Parka this time. Yeah. Garza hits an epic drop kick from the top rope to five, followed by a standing moonsault for the three count and the win. Dusty describes this best. That was a mouthful right there, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Heenan tells Tony he'll show him the proper way to call a replay, which apparently is to get Tanae to do it for him. <laughs> That's what I would do. Lismark does some kind of strange hand gesture like a chomping gator mouth or I guess a shark or something. I I don't quite get it, dude. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? I thought this is a real fun match. It's definitely one of those matches that's a true spectacle. Mm-hmm. Watching this in 1997, you get a really unique flavor to it. Whereas watching this again, say 2000, when Cruiserweights become much more the norm and this kind of match, like we you know, with that long rivalry where it's three count and the various groups yeah. fighting each other, those are always still really good matches, but you come to expect that kind of situation because they're putting those matches every week on Nitro. So when you watch this show where you're getting occasional tag matches, you're only getting six man matches over on pay per view. So this one feels very fresh and different. The crowd couldn't identify Lismark Jr. on a lineup, or know why you should dislike Viano for... They don't really know much about any luchadors other than, say, Laparca, he's the skeleton guy to people with the chair, or they see, you know, Hoovy wrestle a bunch of times. That said, they really win the crowd over by this pure spectacle, and yeah. I think we describe it as a, this is like a stunt show kind of match. Yes. There's going to be bits where, yes, they're obviously cooperating, stuff that's silly if you really think about it, again, like... Kicking the guy so he drop kicks his own partner, that kind of stuff. But that said, there's a lot of little nuances that they try to work in the match. Like, they work in that Laparka does not get along with his partners. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you noticed, when they do the switch with Viano 4 and Viano 5, the reason Laparka is not around to get involved in the action at that point is he's actually hiding yes. Viano 4. He's using his body to cover him. And it speaks to his character. He's so confident. Hey, we switched our guy. We're going to win this match. I don't need to bother getting back in the ring and fight because oh, we got it in the back. Mm-hmm. They find little subtle ways that the characters are different in how they wrestle. Because again, you don't know their characters. You know, you know their likes and dislikes. When they do the multiple dives, they all, to the outside, they all do it a little differently. Garza has a torneo dive, which is really impressive. And you have Juventud Guerrero's one where he gets chucked like Six, eight feet out of the ring. Clears the ropes like nothing. Super high in the air, yeah. Oh, God, I'm so glad that they aimed that right. Yes. I I hope we never had a problem with aiming that thing right, because that would really not be fun. You you would be dead. If he did not have that aimed right, he would be dead. That's fair, yeah. Super impressive spot, but I'm I'm so glad that I'm watching it on a show from 1997, and I know that he lives through it. (laughs) Yeah. 
there's a part where they're all fighting in the ring. I believe Garza does a middle rope moonsault, and then Lismark just jumps up and does a top rope moonsault. So little things like that are really impressive. That they mm-hmm. find their own. Well, I do that. I do it this way, or like I dive. You know, I do a corkscrew dive and stuff like that. It doesn't speak to the character, but you can recognize their spot differently. It's not yes. Every match had someone doing a moonsault. By the eighth match, you'd be like, "Oh, moonsault, whatever." <laughs> Which is a shame because it's a cool move to do. You don't want to kill a move. So I like that they mix it up a bit here. It's one of those matches that's definitely bonkers. If you try to say write a match recap for it, I'm sure it's fun. That was a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I joke with you when you're talking about your word count. I joke that half your word count was probably this match. <laughs> definitely could have been. Definitely yes. could have been. Yeah. And several of the matches you feel for them because they, they got to be sore like during the match. And they know, like, oh, I got three more dives I got to do. I got to catch this guy. Credit workers do. They do some really impressive stuff. They really throw their, put the bodies in the line. There's people that, it's audience that doesn't know who they are, but that's wrestling. You go and try to impress people that you don't even know and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely spent after this match. Mm-hmm. They should have just ended the show here. It's like nothing's going to get better than this <laughs> at this point. Right. The match was absolutely insane brilliance. One acrobatic move after another, delivered at a blistering pace. Yes, I'll complain about them not letting spots breathe, but in this case, if they let all the crazy spots breathe, this would have taken up the remainder of the show. Right. Considering the sheer complexity and speed of what they're doing, it's amazing how smoothly this goes, too. While they don't hit every single spot exactly right, they probably hit a good 90% of them with no problems, Mm. and the rest are good enough to work. And yes, there are parts of this that don't look like a competition so much as an elaborate interpretive dance, but the athleticism and intricacy of the moves is nonetheless impressive. Cool that we even got a bit of a twist ending here, with five replacing four, but ending up pinned by Garza anyway. I adored this performance, and I applaud all of these guys, and I am sorry for over-summarizing, perhaps in this case, and not calling out all the cool spots that happened, but I, I didn't want this to be our longest episode of all time. So. Gotcha, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me, the high point of the match is the bot with a star in the middle of the ring. And poor today is like, if we have an overhead camera, you could see where they're forming a star. Yes! How long has it been since we've seen a straight overhead shot? I mean, th- that was like a highlight of the early Starcades, but I think around like Starcade 85 or 86, I think that kind of stops happening. Yeah. It did definitely like have good shots that resulted from that. I'd love to have seen that again. Well, I believe at the time we would joke that they just put a camera man like up in the rafters, you know, in a harness and left him there for the whole yeah. show. So maybe by like the 15th time, the union's like, look, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Two people have died from starvation left up there. <laughs> you, you forgot Steve last week up there. He's still hanging there. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. I distinctly remember, um, I think, Gordon Soley from. The first or second Starcade, I, I think it's the first one it might be actually be, praising the cameraman that he says is like 75 feet in the air. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, praising the overhead shot. So I have fond memories of, of that shot, and I wish they used it more often. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I like that so they have the elaborate star spot. And then Hoobie runs in. Laparka just catches him, briefly puts him in a hold. It's almost, it's kind of like the... It's like a torture, torture rack. Yeah, it's yeah. like torture rack, essentially. And then just like looks down and just chucks him right at Lismore. <laughs> Yeah, as the as the just most just uncaring way that he could possibly have done done that, just like, like yeah, like, I'm yeah. I'm done with this. <laughs> you exactly. Are. You, you can't again. You can't see his face because there we go, full skull mask. But you can feel the disdain he has towards them and maybe even his own partners at this point. 
yeah. for getting put in the star spot through that. I, so I, I love little things like that where you can tell, even if the guy never speaks a word mm-hmm. on camera, you can tell how they feel. Yeah, Parka in particular, I mean, I, I'm sure this is one of the reasons you like him so much, mm-hmm. and I agree. Parka in particular, I think, is very emotive, yes. despite being fully covered. Ray, at least you can see part of his expression. But yeah, Parka is so covered up that you can't, but he manages to be so emotive even so. Mm-hmm. One for me as well is, well, he obviously can do some of the bigger spots. He's not the guy that does the tornillo or does the running planter to the outside. For me, he's the stable block of these matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you could do one of these matches without him, and it's just pure stunt show, crash, you know, let's slam each other and jump and flip. But without that other guy there filling that role, you're missing just something. It's this sort of mm-hmm. unexplainable something you're missing. And that's what he really fills in a match like this for me. Our fifth match is the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, with Jimmy Hart and Jacqueline, versus Chris Benoit in a special career match. The loser of this match will, quote, never wrestle again. Referee for this is Nick Patrick. And Mike Tanay now leaves the commentary team. So there's a lot of stuff to cover with this. We've covered some of this before, and probably I'm sure we'll again, because this few goes for several months. And a lot of it's very awkward, given people involved. Yes. With the hindsight. Honestly, even without the added hindsight, I mean, in the moment, you have Kevin Sullivan booking his wife to you know hang around Chris, you know, this, this angle where you fall in love with him and betray me. And that seemed to have actually happened. Yes. So even then, it's like, oh, geez, you, you booked your own divorce, man, as they say. To Benoit and Sullivan's credit, with all that going on, they kept working together. Sullivan is astonishingly civil, considering what has just gone on. Yeah. It, it is astonishing how Sullivan is able to continue working with Benoit, and not at least to any degree that I've ever been able to notice try to hurt the guy during a match no like he seems entirely trustworthy as a partner in the match still which is amazing yeah for sure anything you give to the other it gets paid back so that definitely encourages you to work together but there's still a lot of that if we start this it's going to escalate let's not escalate it let's mutually assured destruction yeah yeah obviously this goes very dark places eventually um yes i don't think we need to to dwell on that right now but the uh but yeah, even in the moment, it was awkward. Benoit, of course, is part of the Four Horsemen, and Sullivan is part of the, at this point, bare remnants of what's considered the Dungeon of Doom. Sometimes it's called the Dungeon. I guess they realized that Dungeon of Doom sounds really cheesy, and it, it did the entire time. It's like, if we say the Dungeon, that sounds menacing. It still sounds silly, but I guess it's less silly. The yeah. Up Doom part makes it sound much more like the Legion of Doom from Super Friends. Mm-hmm. In kayfabe, uh, it's reached the point where these two can't coexist in the same company, let alone you know the same state. So they agreed that whoever loses would retire and that would, would end this whole thing once and for all. I do not envy Sullivan and Benoit having to follow the luchador match. No. Tony notes that we're going, quote, to the other side of the spectrum here. Jimmy Hart is dressed like a 1970s mob lawyer. Yeah. Jacqueline and Sullivan are clearly not getting along as they walk down the ramp. 
As Benoit walks to the ring, Dusty does a great job building up what retirement could mean to either guy. A brawl inside leads quickly to a Sullivan suplex to the outside, and Sullivan and Jacqueline double-team Benoit and send him to the barricades. Benoit fights back, so Sullivan just flings Jacqueline into him. Benoit and Sullivan brawl onto the stage, where Jacqueline tries to get involved again, but Sullivan shoves her away. Sullivan uses a surfboard and beach chair against Benoit. Hart climbs the lifeguard tower for no adequately explained reason, so Benoit shoves it over and Hart falls into a beach hut in a spot that would have been awesome if it hadn't been in the absolute back of the camera shot. Yeah, right? Sullivan pile-drives Benoit on the floor, lets Jacqueline get a few hits in, and hits his double stomp, but Benoit stuns him and rolls him back in. They fight inside for a matter of seconds before they're back out brawling around the ring and running each other into stairs, cameraman step, and barricades, even right in front of Raven. Finally back in the ring, Benoit drops Sullivan on the ropes and hits a snap suplex for two. Sullivan bites Benoit, so Benoit bites him in the ear, in a clear reference to the infamous bite fight, Holyfield Tyson 2, which had just happened a couple weeks prior on June 28, 1997. Yeah, it's a rare case of them emulating something that in recent events. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Benoit builds to the Crippler crossface, and Sullivan fades, but gets his arm up on the third check. Heenan builds up Sullivan's resilience and determination as Sullivan agonizingly drags himself to the ropes, but Benoit just slaps the hold back on in the center. Sullivan makes the ropes again and slowly fires up, ultimately no-selling some Benoit chops. By now, the commentators, all of them, are actively rooting for Sullivan. Yeah. As Sullivan gets Benoit upside down in the corner, the Tree of Woe, and lands charging knee strikes, Jacqueline gets a wooden chair from under the ring. She goes to hit Benoit, but Sullivan demands that she give the chair to him. So, she nails Sullivan over the head, splintering the chair to pieces. She gave it to him, all right, Tony notes. Yeah. As Hart chases after Jacqueline to question her, Benoit hits his top rope swan dive headbutt to Sullivan for the three count and the win. Dusty calls Sullivan a great warrior, and Tony, Dusty, and Heenan build up the enormity of the loss for Sullivan and the end of his career. As Benoit leaves, Tony says Benoit can now put his feud with Sullivan behind him. Heenan says goodbye and thank you to Kevin Sullivan. Back in the ring, Hart yells at a recovered Sullivan that Sullivan let everybody down and let Hart personally down. Sullivan shoves him to the mat and goes for the shattered remnants of the chair, so Hart beats a hasty retreat, still screaming at Sullivan the whole way. Sullivan slowly walks away, clearly misty-eyed. Dusty gives a tremendous tribute to Sullivan and says that Sullivan loved the ring. Thoughts on this one? I think as a whole, this is a good match. I'm a little split on certain parts of it, though. The first part, the real chaotic bit where they're all fighting at ringside and Sullivan and Jacqueline and Hart, who are sent up the heels in this situation, constantly attacking him, felt a little weird given that Benoit is part of a group that does nothing to stop them from being involved at all. It's a little weird. I did at least like that Someone got to have a big fight on the beach set, this one mm-hmm. at least. I suppose it would have killed the drama of the match if uh, Sullivan had hit him with the rubber shark, <laughs> like on a previous show, <laughs> where Dusty would have lost it. 
I just didn't like that first part of the match because it's real chaotic, and for me, that didn't play to their strong suit. But at the same time, I, I guess I kind of get the idea is that this is a real, like, sort of blood food at some point, somewhat literally. So I get why they're just so aggressive from the get-go. I just I didn't care for that part of the match as much, I'd say. Okay. When they actually got in the ring, or, in, or at least in and around the ring area, I liked that part a lot more. That definitely was the kind of match that they can do together and they had done together. thought that part was really well done. It's interesting, the story they tell, where Sullivan really does, you know, like he fights through the pain and escapes the crossface, eventually struggles to his feet and fights back. It's interesting to think, because they really are giving him like one last big face push mid-match. Mm-hmm. It's intriguing. Yeah, I think it works because of where they are. Last year, he got a face reaction from this crowd. True, yeah. Because it's in Florida. And um, I think they make use of that to have him start out this match as a heel, but kind of slowly transition more face-ish over the course of the match so that he can have his retirement moment. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of torn on the finish. I, I think I said before at the time we watched it. I get the idea that you don't necessarily want him to lose clean, and you want it to sort of be a bitter thing that he's betrayed by Jacqueline. The timing is kind of weird. Because, you know, he's yelling at her about the chair, and he has a good few seconds to realize she's going to hit him. Like, I thought it might work, but if he had, like, turned away from her, like, to say focus on Benoit. can see that, yeah. All how it goes is, she's holding her, the chair, like, in front of her, like, waist level, and he's yelling at her. Then he stops yelling at her, she lifts the chair up, he ducks his head down and closes his eyes, and then takes a chair shot. Which, obviously, you have to do that, and I totally get why you do that, but you kind of want to cover that part of the bit up a bit. Make it look a little better is all I'm saying. I'm kind of wondering if it, if it came slower than he expected it to. Right. Probably. The question I have, and maybe it's part of long-term booking, is why you won't have this happen to him this way, and then have Benoit I'll still attack him afterward. And the Benoit knows full well what happened. I mean, there's no way you miss the sound of a chair breaking with someone's head like that. They'll let all the wood splinters around. I guess it's more heroic to hit him with an, another move, although that sounds more heelish as well. So the suggestion I would have is these guys have fought for so long that Benoit may not be convinced that that's enough to take Kevin Sullivan down. Mm, okay. These are the same guys that fought around like literally the entire arena. True. I think it's Great American Bash 96. I think so, yeah. I think you can see it as uh, Benoit having a healthy respect for Kevin Sullivan's durability. Mm, okay. And and there's so much on the line on this match, I would want to be sure as well. Right. Lastly, I'll say, obviously, we know the long-term risks of doing a top rope headbutt. Yes. Which I don't know how you didn't know that at the time, as person doing it or person calling these matches for him. But if you think that move's not dangerous enough, and it certainly is, now imagine it with a bunch of wood debris in the room. <laughs> this is true, yes. Yeah, any kind of top rope move I wouldn't want to be doing with. Tons of sharp chair shards around the no, ring. No, yeah. There's a minor botch here and there, and this is mostly a brawl, but man, this was a fun brawl. Sullivan clearly wanted to go out with a big fight, and he delivered with a very good performance. The two had intensity and brutality, but also mixed in some fun use of props. Not as wild as the beach brawl last year, but not as confusing either. The match was paced well and managed variety despite a lot of striking, 
and built well to its twist ending, as Sullivan fights hard but just disrespects Jacqueline one too many times and pays for it. Special praise here for the commentary team who come into the match treating Sullivan like the crazy heel he normally is, but slowly come over to his side as he keeps fighting back, matching the mood of the match quite well. Mm-hmm. This is not a bad way at all to end a full-time career. We would, of course, see Sullivan briefly return with his old varsity club team on Starcade 1999. So Sullivan is definitely retired, and actually has more matches before the one you even talked about. He would actually unretire about a year later. Okay. He'd work for a high indie promotion. Okay, so picture this. So you've had your big epic preview match where you end your career so you can be a backstage booker, but you want to come back for another match. Who do you pick for your big comeback match after this big moment on Bash of the Beast 97? Um, Blue Meanie. Oh, no. <laughs> no. So now if you want someone to really give you the shine you need, you get Vincent. Oh. Yeah. You get multiple matches against Vincent. That's his retur- Those are his return matches for an indie promotion in Ohio. Incidentally, Sullivan's last match, official cage match, is from 2019. Fittingly, he has his final, at least so far, match against Brian Pullman Jr. at an indie show. Reference to their old uh, feud and everything, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You want to take a guess at how many, how many matches he's had since his actual retirement, though? I made sure to count. I forget what use this. Okay, so it's something you could count. Yeah. So this is every match post this match. Okay, for any kind of promotion, just every match. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cascade matches all of his matches, yeah. Uh, 40. 82. Yeah, okay. Well. Some people just say retire. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's still more legitimate than any of Terry Funk's retirements were, so, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> as for more direct future, Ben Wild, of course, ended up in a tag team match at Broad Wild, as we've seen. Yes. Our sixth match is Steve Mongo McMichael with Deborah McMichael versus Jeff Jarrett for Jarrett's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Jimmy Jett. Ah, Jeff Jarrett, the horseman that nobody wanted. <laughs> After a jump from Federation number six, uh, Jarrett will be brought in by Ric Flair, famously in a big in-ring promo, announces the new star that's going to be part of the Lesser Four Horsemen. As you you like to talk about, they would have a uh, they'd have a woo off and a strut off. Yes, which will go horribly awry for poor Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, Jarrett does his one strut over and over and over, and Ric Flair does these like massively varied ways of doing his routine. And somehow this is supposed to make Jarrett look good. It's funny as heck. I loved watching it, but it in no way builds up Jeff, Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> yeah, if the plan was to get people to turn on him, it worked. But I don't oh, think yeah. that was the plan. <laughs> But yeah, so he faced a pretty strong rejection from fans and in storyline from the other horsemen other than Ric Flair. In spite of that, he would actually end up winning the U.S. title from Dean Malenko on Nitro, which is the start of Dean Malenko's losing streak uh, story, which we covered parts of in the recent past. The other aspect going on is that while he's officially not part of the group, Jeff Jarrett does seem to have the eye of Mongo's wife, Deborah, who's also his valet. Nothing overt, but definitely like, when they were tagged together, she would seem to be watching him more than watching Mongo. She'd be distracted. That kind of thing to hint at something going on there. People have been wondering, like, is she more interested in Jared than him? And it's not clear. 
Yeah, it's always interesting to think about this period with uh, with Jarrett, because I totally get why the crowd doesn't take to him. I believe it's probably about 75% that outfit. Does not help, no. But at the same time, Jarrett is a great performer. Sure. And I think actually would make a really good horseman. Yeah. He would fit right in that group. He's that old school mentality. He wrestles good matches. He's from that proper era to really get what that group means and how to work within it. And it's such a shame that that just doesn't work. Yeah. I think they make of it what they can, but you really wish that that had worked out because I think Jarrett would have made an excellent actual horseman as opposed to the uh, unwanted horseman that he ends up being. It's 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 a massive shame. Mm -hmm. Mongo says it's time for him to have a belt around his waist, and Jarrett should never have jumped in his chili. Goodness, I hope it wasn't too spicy. There's no way Jarrett would avoid getting that in his eyes if he was jumping in it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is such a weird expression. <laughs> it's like, that's got to be a weird regional thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's laughing lost on me for sure. Mongo has his traditional briefcase, and Deborah, of course, has her queen of the WCW sash. Yes, yes, she does. I still hate Jared's outfit. Yeah, e even if it's supposed to be guitar strings, it's not a good look. Yeah. Jarrett poses with his title, but Mongo steals the belt and poses with it too. Jarrett lunges in, but Mongo goes to hit him with the belt, so Jarrett flees. Jet finally gets the belt, as Jarrett says Mongo has to earn the belt just like Jarrett did. But then Jarrett gets the belt back and poses with it again to massive boos from the crowd. Mongo directs a Jarrett sucks chant, so Jarrett retreats outside for a while. Finally, he returns, and we actually get started. Mongo overpowers Jarrett, swinging him around with ease, and hits a great spinebuster. Mongo three-point stance, and Jarrett flees outside, selling the leg. Back in, Mongo wins a test of strength and sends Jarrett back out with a clothesline. They brawl over by Sid Vicious Guy. Mongo chokes Jarrett with a cable, earning a warning from Jet. Tony says that would have been a DQ if they'd been in the ring. So, so wait, that's actually okay to do if you're not in the ring? Um, I have what? More, I have more questions now than before. <laughs> Back in, Mongo hits a dangerous-looking press drop, but then gets two with a power slam. But Jarrett dodges a running knee, and Mongo hits the turnbuckle. Jarrett furthers the damage with Mongo's own three-point stance charges, then goes for the figure four, but Deborah gets on the apron with Mongo's briefcase. Jet argues with Deborah, but she sneaks the briefcase to Jarrett, who nails Mongo hard in the arm and in the head, or the noggin wagon per Dusty. <laughs> Jarrett disposes of the case and pins Mongo for the three-count and the win. Dusty says he's dumbfounded, and Heenan's confused as well. Jarrett celebrates with his belt and hugs Deborah, and she says she'll never give the U.S. title up as the two exit. Mongo is distraught. Weird that two matches in a row had endings revolving around a female manager betraying someone. Yeah. <laughs> Differences in how it happens, at least, I guess. True, yes. Thoughts on this one? This is a pretty de decent match, all things considered. You do have, definitely have to account for all the stalling. Yes. The match is like officially like, what, six and a half minutes, I think, is what it's supposed to be. I'm wondering how much of that is. Pose with belt, leave ring, pose with belt, you know, walk around outside the ring, 
yell at a crowd. There's an excessively long intro to this match, yes. That said, the actual match, when you get it, as brief as it actually is, I think works quite well. Mm-hmm. They tell a good story that Mongo is just more passionate and angry, because he really hates Jeff Jarrett, and he's really driven to steal the title from him, to get it back. So he's, you know, he's hitting him real hard, and he's taking control, but he's also less experienced, so when things can turn against him, they can turn against him really quickly. Jarrett's a guy who, even at this point, has, what, probably 10 years of wrestling is his career at this point? Uh, one of the running things throughout I find interesting is that Dusty really praises whoever gave this game plan to Mongo. The implication would be, of course, that it's like, you know, Flair or Arn coached him through a match how to beat Jarrett. Right. But there's a point towards the end when he does the elbow drop to Jarrett when he's slightly outside across the ring apron. Mm-hmm. And he simply calls out that was a move that his buddy Dick Murdoch used to do. I'm At that point, I am a thousand percent convinced that Dusty laid this match out to some degree. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. You can't see his smile because you don't see him on Hunter, but you can you can almost hear his smile when he's talking about how someone gave him a great game plan, how well it's working. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I did a good job, didn't I? I could see that. I could see Dusty being a good person to get involved in this, too, because yeah. he has that same kind of old-school mentality that Jarrett will work with quite well, but he can give Mongo a good match design as well. Exactly, so yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if, if Dusty was involved in it, and oh. if so, he's right. He did do a good match design. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with him to do that. And I, I know because we didn't see the credits. He's, he's listed as a producer on the show. Mm-hmm. So it's just funny they sort of shows his hand a little bit there. It seems to, anyways. <laughs> the one question I have involved in the finish is, so the very first shot where he strikes him the elbow, is that really like part of the storyline finish? Like the headshot he does is the knockout blow, and that makes sense. But, like, do you need the elbow shot to like wear him down? Like, he do you know? Oh, he's definitely going to block this, so I should hit the elbow and then hit his head, or did he just put his hand up and they went with that? I'm not sure. I mean, because Jarrett goes so quickly to the second hit, it's not like Jarrett's thrown at all No, by that having happened. But I'm unclear on if that was an accidental Mongo forgot and got his hand up or didn't do the block right, or if that just actually was their intent. It works well. I mean, if, oh, if it, does, it was yeah. the intent, it, it looks good, and it looked like it hurt. So yeah, I hope well, it, you hear that one, yeah. Yeah, I hope it didn't feel as bad as it sounded, because that looked and sounded very painful. Yeah, I think it's one of those cases where it's made of like a sort of like aluminum type metal. So when it it's hit against things, it makes a really loud noise. But I think it's fairly thin. Mm-hmm. This is why he just goes a full on straight swing right at his head. Yeah, but Mongo definitely like howls loud, and Mongo is not a very good actor. So no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable match. Jarrett did a great job making Mongo look powerful, really throwing himself around on Mongo's moves and screaming in pain. Mongo, for his part, bellowed through the entire match, which helped him look intimidating as all heck. This is a very loud match. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. All you needed to make it better was Lex Luger in there, man. Based on this show, we need Luger and Mongo and, I guess, Hector Garza in a match. Yes. The match has a good general plot, with Mongo being aggressive and powerful, but Jarrett managing to outfox him and work the leg to set for the figure four. They got to the twist ending maybe a tad too quickly, though. It would have been nice if Jarrett did actually try the figure four after setting up for it, and only went for the briefcase when that didn't work. Mm -hmm. Still, a short but fun match with these two. Yeah, I think 
long term, we look at a match like this. I don't think I'm going to have to look back and go, oh, wow, this Mongo match and Mongo Jared match really stands out to me. But given the expectations we generally have for a Mongo match, based on his level of experience and ability, it definitely rises above what you expect. <laughs> definitely because of whoever put the match together, what it really was dusty. This was definitely an a well above average Mongo match and genuinely a fun match to watch. So yeah, I have no complaints about it. Yeah, agreed. On the following Nitro, we'd have a big match between Ric Flair and Jeff Jarrett, which would end in a disqualification when the rest of the horsemen, including Mongo, would attack Jarrett formally for real this time to pick him out of the group. It was kind of unclear that whether Flair still supported him, but after the turn on this show and then the beatdown afterwards, there's no question that Jarrett is no longer at all affiliated with the horsemen gotcha. in any way, shape, or form. So you get the team of Mongo and Benoit, attorneys at law to face Jarrett in his unlikely alley of Dean Malenko. Unlikely given that Dean Malenko, as you might remember from my setup, is the guy he won the U.S. title from, via cheating. They would end up in a, an elimination tag team match at Road Wild. Tony asks Gene what he thinks about what just happened, and Gene says he's appalled. And speaking of being appalled, he says, there's buzz about the main event with Hogan and Rodman versus Luger and the Giant. Heck of a transition, Gene. Transitions, folks. Yeah. Gene shells the hotline with a scoop on DDP's partner versus the NWO. 1-900-909-9900. Or, you know, you could just wait a couple minutes as that match is literally the next match on the show. (laughs) Just one promo segment away. Yeah, right. How impatient would you have to be to call the hotline to find out what was happening minutes later on a show you'd already paid to see? (laughs) It's a very good question. Yeah. Gene shows the upcoming Road Wild, and we get a brief ad for it in which the signers are riding to Sturgis, pursued by an NWO policeman. Okay, then. We cut to an NWO black and white video promo from Hogan and Dennis Rodman. So, of course, NWO theme count one. (laughs) Whoa, 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 you know... Hollywood's on a roll, brah. The deal is, I've been on the porch so long, I've been running by myself, I'm the big dog. It's finally nice to find another champion. It's finally nice to find another dog. It's finally nice to find a fire hydrant that you have something in common with. And just like Hollywood has been rocked by Rod the Bot in Hollywood, just like the wrestling world is going to be rocked tonight by Rod the Bot in Hollywood, Daytona Beach doesn't have a chance. Bash the beach because Rod the Bot, the god himself, destroyed the whole town last night. Sweet! You be the man. You be the man. You are the man. I love to be the man. Let me tell you right now. They told him, you don't know what hit you. Because you know why? Because Rod Dubai, Hollywood Hogan, we're here to tear this town apart. And you know what? Accept it. We ain't going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. You know what I like so much about you? It's the fact that you have a conscience. The fact that when you bust people right in the skull, 
The fact is, you saved a couple lives. You left the giant, that big, nasty, war-infected giant, and Flexi Lexi, that Hollywood wannabe, for us to beat up tonight. Daytona, you've been devastated. This town can't handle Rod the Bod. But tonight, we're gonna take up the last two survivors. Hollywood and Dennis Rodman, the dirty dog. We're take out the time. We're here. We're here. You know what? Would you get your hands on that message? Would you please save a little piece for me? You know, would you please save just a little bit? No, I, think, I just want to have a little bit. I just want to take him down. He may be tall, but as they say, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. And you know what, bro? I didn't realize that everybody in the sports world was going to be watching tonight. I thought that maybe they would take the show, maybe they would wait just a couple more moments to see what's happening. But whenever there's a natural disaster, whenever the two greatest athletes on God's green earth get together, everybody pays attention. They have no you, choice, they have no choice. You, have no choice. You put the icing on my cake. <laughs> You're great. I know I am. I know I am. You're great. I know I am. But you even better. You, you know what, I just agree. Because you know why? Better. It's nothing better. They want this. They want, uh, they want the, the ultimate. They want the ultimate goal. But you know what? And when you're NWO, you're NWO for life. This still has the usual stylish NWO feel with the black and white palette, freeform camera, and constant NWO theme, dang it. Yes. And they're always a bit rambly, but Hogan and Rodman just kind of seem to start talking here and just kind of keep going. Yeah. I'll say the thing we discussed in that first show where they got the proper NWO one, I think it might have been the Nitro we covered. Yes. We joked about how overproduced these things were. And they, they talked about it, you know, the people involved to talk about it. They'd film like, film like an hour or two hours of all these things and then cut it and paste it, and, which had to the disjointed, chaotic nature of it all. They just jump a conversation because they these different takes. So you let's take you take three, and then only take six here, and take one mm-hmm. here. Whereas this one, they basically point the cameras at them, and say, like, "Yeah, say whatever you want. We're cool." It feels like this is them planning out the promo and doing some rehearsal, and someone just accidentally turned the camera on. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. It's just strange. <laughs> Between multiple bouts of mutual admiration, society and claiming that they destroyed Daytona Beach. They work in several bizarre statements, most notably Hogan calling Rodman a fire hydrant and himself a dog, which makes me wonder if Hogan knows what dogs do with fire hydrants. Guess not. And Hogan claiming he thought people would tape the pay-per-view rather than watching live, which doesn't suggest a great deal of confidence in WCW's performance. Well, before he said, tape it and then wait a couple of minutes. Yeah. (laughs) As someone who's taped a lot of stuff off TV, that's That's not how it works. That's not how it works, no. It was still honestly fun to watch just because it's so different from what you normally get with wrestling promos. Mm-hmm. And it was a massive improvement over the last Dennis Rodman promo that we had with his weird delivery of his uh, shouts to Vader. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. But man, this one was bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Part of me really wishes that, especially because he's, he's around for the match itself, that Savage was involved in this. Yes. That's the only way it could be more in outer space, I think, than it is currently. Yeah. Well, plus, Hogan and Savage have more natural repartee. Mm-hmm. 
you can tell Oka definitely trying to get that with Rodman throughout these promos and like on the show is building up to this and then on this even this show here. They definitely don't quite have that down yet. They'll have more practice as we'll discover. But yeah, whereas if Savage is there, you'd have a war control thing and they sort of cut to Rodman to say crazy stuff. I feel like if you took a shot every time they said Rod the Bod, you would not make it to the end of the show. <laughs> this is true. Among other things involved. I, I feel like during this, you can tell Hogan is the one that has the responsibility for kind of like keeping them moving towards a conclusion. And he does a pretty fair job of that. There's a few points where he kind of like brings in the next topic or cuts off a segment that's reached its end. Yeah. It makes sense as the more experienced performer, he's kind of like, you know, controlling the pace of the promo. And it's it's actually not that long of a promo. When you first watch it, you think that this is this thing's like five or six minutes or something like some of the older NWO promos. Yeah. It's actually like three. Okay. Um it's no longer than the Raven segment. So gotcha. um it's not like the incredibly indulgent thing it at first <laughs> sounds like it is. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or a diss on my part, but um mm-hmm. no, I get it. I I did actually ultimately enjoy this promo. It's it's very interesting. It's just it feels very strange. I, I think it makes sense thinking of it in context of the old NWO promos that, like you said, they would do this long conversation and then they would trim it. It's like they did the long conversation part and they just forgot to do the cuts. Yeah. Or as Gary thought, this is the cut down version. <laughs> There's not any like awkward no, I know. camera cuts or anything like that, though. So that's the thing. <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Get, get get the show on DVD and hear the full twenty five minute version of the, <laughs> the Rodman Hogan promo. I would I would almost be curious enough to do that. I don't know, <laughs> almost. Yeah, it's one of the tricky things. So right, so obviously they've been doing these interview promos for well, a year at this point now, or just about. So on one hand, you're like maybe you've done so much of that already. If you don't do it on this show, it'll be fine. But then the flip side, of course, is that they think this is the big show people are going to watch. Yes. We've been building up this Rodman match. It's the match of the century, greatest moment in sports history. So if we don't do an interview or promo, even if it's just the two of us, then it's a, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. So I kind of get why they did one. And it's definitely not as long as other ones, but it's it sure is even more rambly and less structured than normal. <laughs> Our seventh match? is the NWO, Scott Hall and the Macho Man Randy Savage, with Elizabeth, versus Diamond Dallas Page and a mystery partner with Kimberly Page. Referee for this one is Mickey J. So, of course, the story going out of this is that DDP would famously rebuke the New World Order as they tried to invite him, and they would start to feud. He'd have a bunch of matches with Randy Savage, of course, who'd do this whole thing where Randy Savage would pretend like he didn't know his name, and you'd just really disrespect him. Meanwhile, Kevin Nash is absent with legit injury, thankfully not a major one, but enough to keep him off TV for a while, which is why they involve six in the tag matches and such. This is why it's Scott Hall and Randy Savage versus DP and his partner. Though at the same time, obviously, you have the Randy Savage connection there. So it doesn't feel like, oh, we got to sub out somebody. And obviously, it sounds insulting to Randy Savage, and I don't want to do that, that you're, he's subbing in for somebody else because he's Randy Savage, you know. It's mm-hmm. The big moment, of course, going up to this is the Go Home Nitro before this. Randy Savage would say he's going to he's gonna make a warm-up match. He's going to show people really how to wrestle. And he's going to show DP what he's got coming. So he'd face the Lucha Legend himself, La Parca. Match would go on fairly normal until Randy Savage, thinking he had the advantage, would go for his top of elbow. 
But of course, he wouldn't land the right way because he's actually there to get two boots in the face as he drops down. And as he's recovering, Tony Parker grabs him and does the diamond cutter, throwing <laughs> off his mask, revealing that he's actually DDP. That is amazing. It's a great example of how you can use the gimmick of Lepark, because as we noted, he is the largest of the Luchadors, at least mm-hmm. what we've seen. So, even though technically, I think DDP is slightly taller than him, the, f- the fact that he has a full bodysuit and is at least very close to the size really does help in the situation. Yeah, it's not like DDP disguising himself as Rey Mysterio. No, no. <laughs> I will say also, as you know, the Lepark superfan of the duo, it kind of gave away when you watch back the match, obviously knowing the angle, because the Parker comes out, he dances a little bit, but he's dancing without his chair. Ah, okay. If he's a real Parker, he'd have his chair with him. <laughs> to his credit, though, DDP does work in a little uh, Parker happy dance during the match itself. So That's cool. Like, he, yeah, he does actually he try did, to do that, yeah. He actually did study the gimmick a, a bit, rather than just putting on the outfit. That's exactly. cool. The tag match has announced two people will come into play that could be the tag partner. First, Raven. The other is Kurt Hedig, who very recently left the WWF. He was managing a young Hunterist Helmsley. They seemed like they were building up some sort of feud where Hennig would turn on him, but then abruptly he left the company. And so he's officially signed with the, the WCW, so I'm saying it now too. <laughs> and so the mystery is who's going to be DDP's partner? Will it be Raven? Will it be Kurt Hennig? Or will Sid Vicious Shirt Guy finally get his wish granted? <laughs> Can you imagine DDP and the Master of the Power Bomb? Mastered rule of the world. You know, those would probably be some of the best Sid Vicious matches ever, because DDP would yes. be plotting them. Very true. <laughs> NWO theme count, two. Hall and Savage are out first, accompanied by Elizabeth. Hall wears his tag title belt and carries Kevin Nash's, even though this isn't a title defense. Nice touch there. Mm-hmm. Funny that two Bash at the Beach shows in a row, we've got a NWO tag team match with a mystery partner, and Scott Hall is even in both of them. Yeah, the role has been reversed a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DDP and Kimberly come out next, and DDP's pyro, which isn't actually shown on camera, scares Dusty. <laughs> DDP's mystery partner turns out to be Kurt Hennig. His pyro is visible. Yes. Tony points out DDP's eternally bandaged ribs. Savage and Page start. Savage dodges a spinning lariat, but Page catches him with a second, then beats him up. Savage rolls out and considers a chair, then taking a walk, but ends up just hurling in some flowers from somewhere and getting back in. Poor Mickey J has to clean up the plant debris, as Savage and Page spit at each other. Tag to Hall, who demands Hennig, so Page tags Hennig. Hall throws his toothpick at Hennig, so Hennig spits his gum at Hall. Hall says something like, You haven't changed. These two had matches in the WWF when Hennig was Mr. Perfect. Yes. And of course, they were tag partners in the AWA. Yes. Hennig out-wrestles Hall and slaps him hard in the face. Macho and Page lunge in briefly, but Jay maintains order. Hennig lands strikes, an atomic drop, an inverted atomic drop, and finally a flipping neckbreaker, and shouts, Now that's! before stopping himself, as the WWF would probably sue if he called himself perfect. <laughs> Good catch, Kurt. Yeah. I guess you could have said, that's Hennig, wouldn't quite have worked as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they really should have thought of a new moniker. 
before this match so he could do that, but they just keep calling him Headache. I'm kind of picturing like DDP in the back with a thesaurus. Wait, we got what do you got? What do you got? What do you got? We got something. We need something. <laughs> Tag to Page, and the fans chant for him as he takes it to Hall. But Hall clotheslines him in the corner, and Savage sneaks one in as well. Savage and Hall trade off, concentrating on Page's eternally bandaged ribs. Hall sends Page through the ropes, and Page even makes sure to hit those rib first for maximum sympathy. Yeah. Savage flings him to the steps for about a 0.1 Cena. Yeah, it's so. doesn't doesn't move much. Not really, no. Page crawls over and lets Sid Vicious Guy and his buddy help him to his feet. Back in, Hall gets a discus punch for a very close two count. Tag to Savage, but Page hits an inverted atomic drop and collapses into a tag to Hennig. Savage knocks Page out of the ring and whips Hennig to the ropes just as Page is trying to use them to get to the apron. Hennig hits the taut ropes hard. Page clearly doesn't realize what happened, but an angry Hennig hits him, then walks out. Hall hits the outsider's edge on Page, and Savage hits the big elbow and arrogantly pins Page with one foot for the three count and the win. NWO theme count three. Hennig walks out, and Kimberly nervously tries to get to Page, but Savage and Hall keep getting in her way. They finally leave, and Jay and Kimberly get in to check on Page. The surprise commentators think this wasn't even an NWO plot. It was just Hennig's anger about Page's mistake. The fans champ for Page as he makes his exit, selling the whole way like a champ. Kimberly can be heard criticizing Page's choice for a partner, as Tony notes. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on this one? I like this one quite a bit. I am a little torn, though, because as part of the angle, it kind of just stops suddenly like that. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it works, because it, the whole point of this is really to have Hennig show that he can still go in the ring. Yes. Because you haven't seen him probably seen wrestle in a few years at this point. He's been off for a while. So he's definitely got something to prove here. And it's just how Kurt Hennig was, it sounds like. Then, you know, we get the part where DDP, of course, gets worked over. I don't know if you noticed it. Right before Hall throws him out, they, he gives him the, the little back slap, like with the DDT. Let him know, <laughs> I'm going to throw you out. Obviously, it's good, because if you if you just shove a guy out without warning him, that'd be really bad. Especially the angle that comes that. Especially with this case, because Paige has to actually hit the ropes, getting more sympathy from the crowd. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm glad they, they plan ahead for Yes. Them, so, yeah. So then once he you know, finally gets his big tag and the match is looking to go in the next direction, it abruptly stops because of the angle. It kind of works because it feels unnatural, but it's also the point. So in a way, it's yeah. disappointing because you kind of want to see a more prolonged tag match involving these four men, and unfortunately don't get it. But at the same time, they execute the story really well. Like I said, you get Paige looking strong, and then Hank looking strong, and then the classic... DDP fights back from underneath and comes back for the tag, and it just all goes awry. Mm-hmm. I'm a little torn as well on how you do the ending. I guess the idea is that because the rope's pulled so taut, it just sort of hurts his back more than normal. But it feels like it would be more powerful if he like, actually pulled the ropes down, he went over the top. Because otherwise, I mean, I get he's annoyed because he took what looks like an unpleasant bump on his back, which obviously is the bizarre injury that took him out of wrestling for a while. But it's not quite as impactful an injury seemingly as it maybe should be. Does that make sense? I feel like that spot works, but it needed one other bit of tension to set up for it or something. Like, yeah. If you had a little touch of tension and they get past it, 
and then this happens, then it makes more sense. But at the same time, the fact that it feels unreasonable for Hennig to be that angry, I think actually maybe works in favor of the feud that's coming. Yeah, that that's it, a it, tricky because they, they, they work this whole match abruptly stops thing. So you get annoyed, the match doesn't go anywhere. But then at the same time, that's what they're trying to get you to feel. So I'm totally yeah. torn on it. Yeah, You feel ticked off at Hennig yeah. as a result of this. So I think it actually works really well. And I, I kind of do like that this looked like such a minor moment. The fact that this doesn't look like you know, a major betrayal and that it feels like something you could get past, that it only happens once, well, and he, he still he, he, gets yeah. so angry about it, makes him clearly the heel. Right. He doesn't take that bump on the back and then yell at Paige. He just immediately hits him. Yeah, it goes right to hitting him. Yeah, And which... Paige clearly shoves him into the ring mm-hmm. to get beat up. So it's not even like he hits him and walks off and they, they drag him into the ring. Yeah. It feels very intentional. Like, well, fine, you go to that, I'm going to shove you in there and beat you up. I mean, yeah, you, you look at uh, poor LaParca getting hit multiple times and yes. by his partners in, in his match, and he had the patience of a saint, I think, at that point. Yeah, it's true. I was really torn on that, too. It's like, it feels like for this match, it would be better for there to be more justification, but for the feud going forward, it's really great that they did it this way. Mm-hmm. I found this a really fun match while it lasted. Hennig looked really good and had some nice, smooth counters. And Hall really sold well for him and made him look like an immediate threat. Mm-hmm. It was a good move to have Hall be part of his first match back with WCW, given their pretty long history together, as you noted. I think that was good to have someone really familiar to work with. Page was spot on as usual and had good exchanges with both NWO guys. I really would have loved to have had a few more minutes from this one to let it develop more. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, like on the strength of the match to this point, I would have loved to see a longer form Page and Hennig tag team versus the NWO. Mm-hmm. It feels yeah. like you have a, the makings of a really good tag team there. The two of them have similar mentalities about matches, I think. Yeah. Especially with him working with Savage, too, that, again, Hennig, I think, will be somewhat familiar with. But the feud we get is quite good, and I recall their Starcade match being a barn burner, so... Yeah. It just was a tantalizing hint at what might have been. Well, and, and a broader story point, if this had worked out more, Page's favor would have been interesting, because... The whole idea of the NBA release initially is here's these guys that came from, you know, the other place as they the they tantalized and he called in other ways they would say the other company or outside, all the terms they would use to not say WWF literally on television. And then if the key to stopping them is calling another guy from the WWF in that That's works true. against them, it could have been interesting you to sort of turn their own sword on them as it were. That's true, yeah. Didn't think of it that way. As mentioned, Nash would recover from his minor injury in time for World Wild, where he would reunite with Scott Hall, his partner, and get his belt back to challenge the Steiners. Meanwhile, Rennie Savage himself would face a very large challenge at the same event. <laughs> On the following Nitro, an angry DUP would be annoyed at Hennick, obviously, and would explain his rationale for faking his mystery partner. Basically, he explains that Hennig was his fourth choice. Oh. So and the thing is, he doesn't do it in a way it's like, oh, he's my fourth choice, he's the best I can get or something. He goes through his thought process and just sort of matter-of-factly says that he's the fourth choice. So it's interesting because it's not like outwardly aggressive. He's not saying it despite Hennig. He's just, I guess, being honest to a fault. Well, DDP, you know, has to have, uh, with it, with his binders and everything, probably had spreadsheets full of data about the wrestlers and 
proper contact times to get in touch with them and just, you know, couldn't. Of course. <laughs> he's got their pager number and everything. Yeah, yeah. But no, he explained to his promo that his first thought for a partner to face the was, of course, Sting. Basically, they've called on him too much lately, which I quite get that logic, but okay. Because he just now started popping off the Raptors and saving people. And then he said his next choice would be either, either Lug or the Giant, but they have their own match going on tonight. So then later on, he, of course, goes for more revenge against the duo of Hall and Savage and attacked by Hennig. Gee, why is he mad, based on what you said earlier in the same show? <laughs> this, of course, would lead to a match we have at Road Wild between Hennig and DDP. Oh, and the overarching story throughout as well is that, as we see at that match at Road Wild, is that Ric Flair is trying to recruit Hennig for the Four Horsemen. Our eighth match is Rowdy Roddy Piper versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair. Referee for this one is Mark Curtis. The duo were briefly together as a tag team, as we saw in a six-man match at Slamboree, as you recall, with Kevin Green. That was that was a honestly wonderfully entertaining little match. It was. So they would challenge the tag titles at a previous show, but come up short. Flair, being Ric Flair, would place all of the blame for the loss on Piper and have the Forestman beat up Brody Piper after the match. <laughs> He'd go on to call him a has-been... Sometimes call him never was, and of course call him a wannabe movie star. Dang. I mean, I've seen a lot of Piper's movies outside of They Live, which is amazing. So, it's not the most inaccurate insult. <laughs> this is true. To be fair. Flair would go to the heel book of cliches and turn to page 452, which is bring out a fake Roddy Piper, in this case a mannequin, on multiple shows, claiming that Piper has shown up and then make fun of him. On the go of Nitro, he would try it one more time, and of course... Piper would show up behind the mannequin. Flair being Flair would be so engrossed in his promo, making fun of Piper, he doesn't even notice another person behind him. <laughs> He'd be, of course, subsequently be attacked by Piper, who did not take what he said very well. But they'd end up in the ring, where he'd be taken out by a four-horseman three-on-one beatdown. Building up this match. NWO theme count, four. Briefly, as the sound guys accidentally start the wrong song for Piper's entrance before quickly <laughs> correcting themselves. Yes. Uh, we're on form tonight. Oh, yeah. Piper's pyro nearly drowns out the commentators. Flair has a blue and silver robe today, which looks great. It does. Heenan compliments it, too, so you know I'm right. Fair enough. Dusty asks, who knows Flair and his tactics better than Roddy Piper? Pr- probably you, Dusty? Yeah. You spent you spent literal years feuding with the man? <laughs> Maybe Arn. Arn Arn's pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah. Tully, perhaps. DJ Dillon. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Sting. Yeah, for sure. Although yeah. well, Sting forgets every time though. That's true, that's true. Yeah, we yeah. can't say that Sting knows his tactics. Yeah. It comes and goes. Piper attacks aggressively, landing rapid punches, and Flair flees outside. Back in. Flair trades chops with Piper, but Piper slaps him down for a Flair flop and sends him flipping over the turnbuckle, then clotheslines him off the apron. Piper beats Flair up outside the ring using the barricade and the ring post and rewards a Flair eye poke with one of his own once they're back in. But Curtis warns Piper about choking and Flair sneaks in a chop block. Flair works the leg with chop blocks and kicks, and despite Piper's bravado, he's clearly struggling to stand. Flair locks on the figure four. Piper slumps for a two-count, but Flair makes the mistake of slapping him. Have you learned nothing from Sting? (laughs) 
Or Luger, even. Luger did yeah. that as well. I guess Flair's fought Sting so much, he has his memory problems, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> Piper fires up and turns the hold over, and Flair breaks the hold. Piper hits a swinging neckbreaker for two, but goes for a choke again, and Flair takes advantage of Curtis's warning to slug Piper in the crotch. <laughs> Dusty calls Flair the dirtiest player in the ball game, and I'm not sure if he even realizes that was a pun. <laughs> Probably not. Flair lands strikes and dodges a Piper haymaker, but Piper lands rapid combination punches, then knees Flair in the Traspecius thing <laughs> per Dusty. <laughs> yes. Dr. Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Love Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Piper limps around as he beats Flair up, but Flair counters the sleeper with a jawbreaker and pins Piper with his feet on the ropes for four two counts, only breaking to yell at the crowd when they try to tell Curtis. The ref never once checks either. Yes. <laughs> Flair goes up top, but Flair Karma strikes, and Piper puts on the figure four. Flair slumps for two, but gets the ropes. Flair sneaks a hand protector, per Heenan, from his knee pad as Curtis, wanting to check on Flair, holds Piper back. A frustrated Piper shoves Curtis down, so Flair tries to hit him with the weapon, but Piper blocks, steals it, and floors Flair. Floors Flair sounds like some sort of Swedish tennis player. (laughs) Yes. Piper goes for the pin, but Mongo runs in and distracts Curtis as Benoit goes for the swan dive headbutt. Piper gets off Flair, Sees Benoit, gets back on Flair, gets back on Flair, and gets back off just as Benoit dives so that Benoit can hit Flair. Which one do you look stupidest in that scenario? I, I don't Discuss know. amongst the group. Yeah. Curtis goes to get Benoit out. Piper clearly sees Mongo, and even, I believe, points at him, but mm-hmm. then tries to pin Flair anyway. Knowing Mark Curtis is looking the other direction, yes. Yes. So Mongo hits the tombstone pile driver. Flair rolls on top for two. Mongo and Benoit, by now up the ramp, look on as Piper no-sells Flair's chops and catches Flair with the sleeper hold. Flair fades, and Curtis checks the arm. Once, twice, three times. Flair has lost consciousness, so Piper wins. So, why didn't Mongo and Benoit come back down? They, They clearly saw that Flair had not won. I mean, that's a long walk. I mean, they already made it down once. I guess so. And Mongo's arm is owie, so. Yeah. (laughs) Piper limps up the ramp. Good post-match selling tonight. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on this one? So, for better or worse, this match is definitely the Ric Flair versus Roddy Piper Agreus hits match. Just slowed down quite a bit. It's not like that one slavery match where the two guys that should have been wrestling because they're way too old sort of rolling very slowly around the ring. Right. I think I described it as like turtles. This is the description I used, I believe. It might have been, yeah. I, I, Something like I that, yeah. I remember describing that one as a good match played at somewhere around like one quarter speed or something like that. Pretty like much. the actual mechanics of what they were doing was good, but just the pacing was very slow. Yes. So in this case, it's not like they're doing the move at slow speed like that one is. In this case, they're doing the move, but like the gap and the space between each move and like how long they sell it is definitely a lot slower. Mm. To be fair, and I'm going to be 100% honest, I mean, so I, I did make sure I got this right. Piper, if my math was correct, was 44 at this point. And of course, that had a hip replaced. Yes. And Flair is actually 48 at this point. Looking probably better than I'll look at 48, to be fair, to him. Yes. 
So it's not shocking. It's not like, I can't believe the, they're the wrestling slower. Obviously, they're going to be wrestling slower. That's just kind of a given. That's the risk you run having, you know, Flair and Piper wrestle in 1997 when you'd, you know, you'd have Flair and Piper wrestle in 1981, the year my brother was born, when they were fighting over the U.S. title in the NWA. And, of course, in WBF, they wrestle in 91, so on and so forth. So you have so much film to compare to, you can't help but make the comparison. It's just how that works. The trade-off is, of course, a lot of old-school fans, especially at this point, are really what WCW was bringing in. That's just why Flair was like, even when he wasn't treated as a top face, was practically the top face. Even when he was a heel, he was practically the top face for the yeah. large demo of the audience. We've definitely reached the Flair is respected regardless of his character at this yeah. point, yeah. So in this case, the match is definitely slower. But what they do with the timing in their defense is that they really make it about hitting some sort of move, whether it's the chop block or the series of punches, and then pausing and really selling it. Piper really does a good job of selling the leg injury, mm-hmm. for instance, throughout the match. Oh, yeah. Objectively, it's a slower, more methodical match than anything else in the show, really. But they feel the time better. It's not like they just lock and say a, a headlock and sit there for two minutes to get their breath back. Right. There's a large demo that doesn't care about anything I just said and goes, Ooh, it's Flair, it's Piper, and I've, I've seen them wrestle probably a hundred times, and I love Flair and Piper, so I don't care. And that's perfectly fine. You can, you can enjoy the match that way. For me, I think even as silly as the timing involved that everyone was, in a rare case, I actually like the interference because it's a different angle on a Flair Piper match. It's not just them doing the greatest hits, mm-hmm. Flair Karma, Sleeper, so on and so, I poke, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's not really had done that well because Benoit should not have fallen for that trick. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. I don't know if Piper accidentally got off early and had so. forgotten the spot or or if he was like, oh, I got to check if Benoit's coming, couldn't see him well enough or what. Yeah, because you kind of get a pass with the going with the pin aspect because he knocks Flair down to the see the interference initially. Yeah. But then he gets up and gets back down again. At some point he would have noticed the interference and just not gone for the pin. <laughs> and again, silly as the timing is with Mongo, the fact that he deadlifts Piper like that is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's, it's one of his better looking tombstones. I yeah. think, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, just be aware that this is a Flair and Piper match in 1997, and just know what to expect from it. The strength of their characters really makes it more durable than, I, to be honest, I thought it would be watching mm-hmm. this match. But it's definitely a different pace than anything else in the show. This match was mostly punches and chops, but it had a strong plot regardless, with Flair's usual strong legwork en route to the figure four, and a good subplot revolving around Flair and Piper's shared propensity for cheating that enabled Piper to mostly keep up with Flair's antics. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the huge personalities and a good overall flow kept it interesting, and the intensity both brought to the match made it feel appropriate for there to be so much striking. The ending felt off to me. There's obviously a number of points where it just doesn't seem like people are in the right place at the right time, mm-hmm. and people clearly see something but just ignore it. It makes no sense whatsoever that Mongo and Benoit just leave after their interference doesn't work, either. Still, it's a fun match overall, buoyed by strong personalities. Just a weak ending to me. I do agree that I like the concept of the ending, of them having the interference. I like that the interference doesn't work. Yeah, I just feel like they needed some other explanation there for why they stop interfering. Even if you had shown them walking out and not looking back, but they explicitly show them on the ramp looking back, 
clearly having seen Piper just kick out. Right, yeah. So it feels like they're about to charge back down to the ring, but they don't. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the matches where I think if they had done one or two spots slightly different than expected, uh, it could have helped. Like, for, for instance, the whole match is built around attacking Piper's leg, because that's his weak spot because of the hip and, you know, mm-hmm. Blair's thing. I could see if you, you know, have him, his legs worked over, he can't quite get up. Flair goes up for his, whatever he's supposed to do at the top rope. But maybe he actually does jump. He doesn't get thrown this time because Piper, like, he tries to run, but, you know, his leg gives out on him. Yeah. For instance, that, because that carries the story of the match and it makes the spot not, oh, suddenly Piper gets up and throws him off because, of course, he does. Everyone loves those kind of spots. You know, the guy goes for move and misses because they expect it. And because they like the guy. But every once in a while, if you just mix up a bit, especially with someone like Flair and Piper, that would be a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was glad that you noted uh, uh, Piper's excellent selling during the match as well. He was doing an amazing job of keeping that leg injury going for the duration and letting it impact his movement, even on moves he was doing successfully. Yeah. I don't want to say it's an 80s thing because you do see good selling even in the 90s, but it feels like. That was a more common thing in the 80s. Yeah. I think because they were willing to let it slow the match down, where the 90s, you you maybe have a little bit more of a feeling of, we got to always keep the pace up. Yeah. So it was nice to see that feeling of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to let this happen. I'm going to let it impact everything I do again. Mm-hmm, for sure, yeah. And the fact that he kept it going after the match, too, was really nice that he didn't, you know, do a normal walkout. He had, he limped the whole way. I appreciate that level of dedication. Absolutely, yeah. Carrying back to the Slam rematch, Flair would end up in a singles match against Six at Road Wild. Obviously, as mentioned during all this, Flair is still trying to court Kurt Hennig to be for the Horseman. As for Piper himself, he would be absent for quite a while. He would come back on television in September, where he'd be appointed an honor 30 figure, which would be a way to have him around, but not wrestling as much. Yeah. Our final match is Lex Luger and the Giant versus Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman with Randy Savage. <laughs> Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. We go back to 1995, Bash of the Beach, where, for no apparent reason, Dennis Rodman's here to help yes. out uh, Hulk Hogan. And now he's rejoined his buddy, but this time he's come to the dark side. <laughs> it was even more no apparent reason on the Baywatch episode, where oh, yeah. Rodman is just an unexplained presence at ringside. <laughs> yes. That is true, I forgot about that. So yeah, now he's fully part of the NWO. Part of his attempt they're doing was trying to branch out a bit, get more mainstream, even more mainstream attention, which would definitely never backfire on them. I'd say Road Wild of 1998. <laughs> never. That's, that's how he ended up briefly with an NWO member of the uh, NASCAR Racing League. Right, yes. <laughs> Just very strange to that. You think of the, the elite in the NWO, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Kevin Nash, Hermie Sadler. <laughs> or it's the classic time where DDP is on, I don't know if you remember, TBS's Dinner and a Movie. Oh, God. Uh, but yeah. The host turned heel and joined the NWO against him. And they guess the guy gets beat up by DDP. The least remembered and least important yeah, NWO member. The host wow. of Dinner and a Movie. But cross-branding TBS. Anyway, so back to Rodman. He is now part of the group. He would show up on Nitro, hang around backstage, perhaps partake, party a little too much and partake a little too much. 
And he'd also mispracticed for the Bulls, which the uh, coach did not like and the others did not like. He would take part in a beatdown or two, as shown in the video package, where he'd help keep Luger at bay. It's worth important to remember that Lex Luger is the number one contender to the world title, having won that Four Corners match at Spring Stampede. He had that great character-defining moment where the Giant tags Lex Luger when he's got the chance to easily get a choke slam on, I want to say Booker T, but it could be C.V. Ray. Mm-hmm. Because he knows that Luger is the right man for the job. He's the guy that could beat Hogan. He's the next guy for the thing. I think I might have given Giant MVP for that portrayal. I think you did, yes. I might have. I, I, I yeah. totally get that as well, yeah. There's not a promo they'd run in Nitro in the Go Home episode where he talks about as the high point of his career so far is, is tagging out to let Luger win. That's cool. So, anyways, that brings us back around to all the media attention that they're getting for having Rodman. Well, this point is, I would say, near the peak of his basketball career. So, if it's a time to get him on your show, this is the time. The question is, should you have him wrestling on your show? You'll see. (laughs) Michael Buffer does the introductions, dubbing this a tag team match the world has been waiting for. Really? (laughs) I mean, objectively, that's true, because... We knew what was going to happen, and then we had to wait for it. I guess so, yeah. That's just how time works, yeah. He doesn't mention willingness, yeah. That's true. Luger and Giant are out first to Luger's wonderfully catchy theme. Luger is apparently, quote, famous for his rack of doom. So he stole the of doom from the dungeon, I guess. He was part of them, so it makes Yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true. NWO theme count, five. Buffer dubs Hogan and Rodman a tag team the likes of which has never even been dreamed of, let alone been seen before. Wow. I praise. Buffer says Savage's arrival is a surprise and that he's perhaps acting manager. Is it, is it that surprising to see an NWO guy come out with NWO guys? Tony gives a decent story explanation for Hogan recruiting Rodman for the match, that if he can get a non-wrestler like Rodman to win over Luger and the Giant, It'd be humiliating for WCW. So it's kind of an extra dig of the knife for Tony there. Fair play. Heenan advises Rodman to take his sunglasses off, and Tony wonders about the piercings. Dusty says he would yank on them. Hogan and Luger start. The camera focuses on pro boxer Andrew Galata in the crowd. A former Olympic bronze medalist, Galata, much like Tyson, bit an opponent during a match. Mm -hmm. Not at the Olympics, mind you. That's good. In 1996, he repeatedly punched Riddick Bowe in the crotch during a match, getting disqualified. Yeah. Yeah. This caused a riot. And for some reason, Galata was actually given a rematch after this, in which he proceeded to again get disqualified for again repeatedly punching Bowe in the crotch. <laughs> at this point, who's at fault for that one? <laughs> Fool me once, yeah. Gotcha. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that WCW didn't give this guy a job in the hardcore division. Yeah, right. Hogan and Luger trade shoulder blocks and roars, and Hogan flees outside for encouragement from Savage. Hogan challenges Luger to a test of strength and kicks Luger when he agrees, calling him an idiot. (laughs) Okay, that was kind of funny. Hogan lands strikes and a slam, but Luger dodges an elbow drop and slams him. Hogan tags Rodman. Rodman slowly gets in, and someone with absolutely incredible aim beans him in the head with a wrapper. Yes. Someone tosses one into Hogan, too. Rodman repeatedly backs out of lockups, and Hogan whispers to him. Rodman manages an arm drag, 
and the commentators sell it like he's just won more world titles than Ric Flair, as Hogan and Savage come in to celebrate with him. Oh, and you skipped my favorite part, which is before the arm drag, when he just locks up, they go, history has been made, history has oh, been yes. made tonight. <laughs> Hasn't even done a move yet. History has been made. Luger lands multiple arm drags to Rodman and a charging Hogan, and Rodman loses his bandana and sunglasses. Tony hopes the earrings go next. Hogan and Rodman get comfort from Savage. Back in, Rodman shoulder blocks Luger, and the commentators sell it like he just beat The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Yes. Luger clones lines him, and he tags Hogan. Luger tags Giant, and neither Hogan nor Rodman can gain much ground on him. Giant spanks Rodman and lifts him for a double-handed choke, but Savage draws Luger in to distract the ref, and Hogan boots Giant in the leg. Hogan and Rodman trade off wearing Giant down. At one point, Rodman just seems confused about where to be, and actually trips over Hogan. Yes, he does. Yeah. Hogan and Rodman hit a double hip toss on Giant, and both pin him, which gets two, as apparently that's somehow a legal pin. Well, I mean, it's a tag team match. No. (laughs) I had to try. I had to try. Giant tags Luger, who runs wild with clotheslines for Hogan, Rodman, and Savage. Rodman kicks him in the back for an amazing Luger cell, and Hogan belly-to-back suplexes him for two. Hogan hits the leg drop. For two. It was an arrogant cover, but Luger kicking out of that is big. Except the commentators barely mention it. Point of note, you know who else kicked out of the leg drop at two? Sid Vicious. That's that's true. Yeah. See that the Sid Vicious guy willed Luger to kick out like there. Yeah, it, it was all yeah, it was all the willpower from that shirt. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. The crowd at least chants for Luger, so they care. True. Tag to Rodman, and he lands Nash style back elbows and extended leg boot choke. While Hogan and Rodman celebrate, Luger tags Giant. Savage beats up Luger as Giant lands headbutts and big boots to Rodman and Hogan but Rodman headbutts Anderson. An obviously fake Sting enters. (laughs) Per 83 weeks and what happened when, this one is Kevin Nash. Anyone with eyes, it's Kevin. Yeah, yeah, him going over the top rope for his entrance makes it fairly obvious, yeah. Uh, Nash hits giant... Sorry. (laughs) Keep, Keep up the illusion. Sting, giant air quotes, hits giant with a baseball bat. Giant rolls out, and Hogan and Rodman choke Luger. Rodman holds Luger, but Luger ducks, and Hogan hits Rodman by mistake. Luger scoops Hogan up for the torture rack, and Nick Patrick runs down to replace Anderson as Hogan submits, giving Luger the win. Rodman and Savage each try to attack Luger, and each gets racked in turn. The NWO retreats as Luger goes to check on Giant. Hogan can be heard whining that they cheated. Sure. Thoughts on this one? To be honest, it's a pretty by-the-numbers tag team match, but it's definitely good that the bulk of it is worked by Hogan on the heel side, and really, I'd say Luger on the face side. Obviously, Giant does his, his part as well, but those two, with the most experience of anyone in the match, makes the most sense. Yes, absolutely. The thing about this match is, of course, the announcers, clearly with, like, I want to say, Eric Bischoff yelling in their ear, like Vince McMahon would famously do to announcers for decades, supposedly, we're told, you must hype up this match as the greatest thing in the history of mankind. Yeah. Nothing before or after will be better than this match. Rodman locks up. History has been made. 
Rodden can jump? Who would have guessed? <laughs> it's like they somehow could have worked him throwing a ball in the match. Like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? <laughs> yes. So if you really break this match down and cut out the stalling, I feel like there's probably not a lot more action than we got in the Mongo Jarrett match. And the finish is definitely overbooked. Who was honestly fooled by Kevin Sting? <laughs> okay, even before he steps over the top rope, I'm like, oh, that's this Kevin Nash. There's <laughs> no question about that. <laughs> There's no debate whatsoever. To be fair, it is it is brought up in commentary on the opening of the next Nitro, and it's part of everything I'll cover, so they definitely did not try to pretend like it was anything else. I, I mean, the commentators tonight still sell it like it's oh, actual yeah. Sting, though. That's the thing. Oh, I know. I, I just mean... By by the next night, they 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 say like, oh, like you know, we first saw from far away. I wasn't sure, but you know, yeah. I guess you could maybe give them a little bit of a pass. Obviously, they're saying it because they were told to say it, but maybe give them a little bit of a pass because bear in mind that they're like in the back of the room. They're not like actually at ringside watching things. So they're watching the little monitor. If you really want to accept kayfabe and pretend like they weren't just told to say it, maybe they could be fooled. But the audience is not fooled. Yeah, it's no one in the ring is fooled. I'm glad they at least don't play it up where the giant is fooled or where Luger is fooled. Putting aside the hype, the ridiculous level of hype they give the match, nothing really goes wrong, per se. There's the one part where Savage clearly goes and talks to Rodman, and then he goes to do a spot, which is not that surprising. There's a lot of those points, honestly. Like, okay. Um, they disguise <laughs> one them very, pretty one well. very blatant. There's yeah, one, there's very, one blatant. very blatant. They, they, they disguise them mostly, but really, honestly, count the number of times that Rodman goes over to Hogan or that Hogan gets Rodman over to him or that Savage is having a chat with Rodman. They generally disguise it as them like celebrating about something, but I would yeah. wager that every single one of those and them is them saying, hey, Dennis, here's the next spot sequence. Remember this. Mm-hmm. The one I really had is the one where Savage you know, Pretty much gets on the apron and talks to him. Yeah, mm-hmm. they don't. They don't even cover that one at all. The the other one that is not particularly well covered is, uh, or actually two, both when they're double teaming the giant. The giant, I think, one where Hogan yells very audibly to Robin, "Put your boot up." Oh, which, yeah. Which can at least be taken as match strategy as well. So I don't have a problem with that. And the other one uh, when Robin gets confused and trips over Hogan. Hogan's like, "No, to the apron." <laughs> mm-hmm. Which I mean, there's not much you can do. The guy has clearly forgotten what he's supposed to be doing at that point, so you kind of just have to tell him. But it is funny, you you very audibly hear Hogan on both of those moments. Yeah. There's a one part, too, it's when their teeth in the locker before it actually happens. Hogan yanks him back by the belt. Yeah, you notice that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to make sure you back to the corner in case you remember. Yeah. Yeah, and then Hogan, surprise, surprise, whispers to him immediately afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I'm not necessarily here to defend Rob. He can speak for himself, obviously, and I'm sure he has. But there's a certain level I can say it's his first match, you know. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to go, oh, here's what we're going to do during the match. It's another thing to necessarily be under the lights and have the crowd. Mind you, he is a yes. pro athlete, so he should be better prepared for this than, you know, some random person in their first match. There is a different thing from playing a game that you're used to playing and doing a scripted performance in a style you are not used to. Right. Yeah. That's, that's fair. When he's playing basketball, he, he knows what he's been coached to do, but it's not literally... I'm doing the spot, and and Carmelo's going to get out of the way so I can get a get a shot. Obviously, right? It's still competitive. So I, I give him a little leeway with having to be coached here and there because it is his first match, and he gives him the lights. But it's okay. So it's weird, right? Let's go by the commentators. So when Robin locks up, 
Again, they say history has been made, the game has been changed, all these crazy things. With an arm drag, they act like he's Ricky Steamboat and he's the greatest man in the world. Contrast that to when anytime things are turned against him, like when he's arm dragged by Luger, suddenly they're like real derisive towards him. Like, oh yeah, he yeah. Is, is like it's like I would have liked if they maybe sell. Oh, I'm surprised he will do this move. You know, surprised he learned to arm drag, for instance. But the fact that they make fun of him for like getting arm drag and knocked her over. Right yeah. after the praise are being amazing. It's so confusing. Well, and then you have them like hyper praising the guy and then him getting spanked. Yes. Actually spanked by That's the true. giant in the same match. And you're like, is the point of this match to build up Dennis Rodman as an interesting performer, or is it to make fun of Dennis Rodman? I can't tell. Yeah. There's a real bipolar aspect to the commentators about how they feel about Rodman and his performance and what he can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of that. The over-the-top praise almost comes off as sarcastic. Yes. <laughs> it's it's really weird. I, I don't think it's supposed to be. I don't think it's supposed to be, but yeah, you can, you can take it that way because of how the match is designed and how the rest of their commentary goes. Mm-hmm. This was a pretty bad match, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as bad as I was afraid it was going to be. I, mm-hmm. I know that's not really a compliment, but that's yeah. what I've got. That's fair. Hogan, Luger, and the Giant manage most of the match, and Rodman does look reasonably competent in the few moves that he does. Like I said, it's very clear that he's being directed through the match, though, despite Hogan and Savage's good attempts at disguising it. The match is very slow-paced, in part as a result of their work with Rodman. It doesn't help that the commentators spend generous parts of the match praising Rodman to the moon for a very basic performance. In all honesty, he doesn't have that much more success than your average WCW jobber in this match. Yeah. But they praise him like he's a world title contender. Yes. As for the ending, fake Sting is obviously fake. The commentators sound like idiots claiming he's the real one. But at least that doesn't actually end the match. And Luger does get a heck of a dominant-looking win where he gets to put all three NWO guys in his finishing hold. I think Tony says... Jim, you know, go ahead and put the rack on Sting as well. Mm-hmm. Like he's immediately accepted that Sting is evil. It's amazing. Yeah. So this was a bad match to me, but it did at least make Luger look quite good. So it accomplished a goal. That's fair, yeah. We've got Luger challenging for the title soon, as I'm sure you'll talk about in your wrap up. So um it's important that he looks as good as possible. Yeah. I think this match does succeed in making Luger look like a beast. Yeah, that was my other note. It's at least his match makes Luger look very strong in the end, which is yeah. the goal. Yeah, yeah. So, strange and kind of awkward and slow match, but it does, in the end, accomplish its purpose. Luger's, of course, still number one contender, and he's just gotten another submission victory for Hogan, so he definitely getting that title shot. Interestingly, he decides to take his title shot the Nitro before Road Wild. In a very divisive moment for a lot of people involved in this long-term story, he actually wins the title on Nitro. Purely in the moment, a great moment for WCW. It shows Halo Hogan can be beaten, we can finally win when it counts. Of course, the question is the long-term story is telling, should you have had someone else beat Hogan? I think we've discussed that quite a bit. Yeah, we've done that, yeah. (laughs) To be clear, I do not begrudge Lex Luger his title win. I'm very happy for him in that moment, but... I wish they'd found a way to have him get a title win somehow around this, but I'm not sure when the timing was going to be. Maybe if he wins the title later off of Hogan, instead of rushing right to 
Goldberg, you know, getting his reign. Maybe find some way there, maybe. He he earned a win somewhere. Yeah, I'm I think sure. we've discussed this a few times too, but there are so many people during this period that really deserve a title win because of the couple of huge stories during this period, the main NWO angle and then the Goldberg angle. It's really hard to find a place to fit them in. It's a real shame because it's like you there's so many guys you really want to get a a decent size title reign. Mm-hmm. But um just they move so quickly from the main NWO storyline to the Goldberg storyline that there's not like this breathing room in the middle where you can do some more transitional stuff. Yeah. I think somewhere in that gap from Sting finally gets his title and loses it way quicker than you would think. And Goldberg winning it. You could squeeze something else in there, but Yeah. Like so much of this is us looking at it twenty plus years after the fact and going, well, here's what I would have done and it's, it's you know, it's it's all hindsight. Yeah, yeah. The Giant would end up wrestling Randy Savage on Road Wild. Curiously, he started out the very next Nitro being very mad at Nash. As noted, he was not fooled at all by Kevin Nash as Sting. It was this whole thing where he attacks everybody, takes out security guys, sticks out two guys in the ring. They say he was kicked out of the building or taken away, and of course, that's a way so he doesn't attack anybody else later in the show. But somehow between, I gotta kill Kevin Nash because he, you know, he attacked me with the bat trying to trick me, he goes down and fight Randy Savage instead. That's <laughs> just wrestling for you. And of course, heaven help us, we will see Rodman wrestle again in this series. I will say this was stronger than his Road Wild 1999 one. But yes. I mean, that's a low bar. But I hesitate to use that as a benchmark for anything, but it's still only really have for him at this point. So yeah. I get it. As the NWO retreats and Hogan bizarrely brings up an illegal man, despite fake Sting helping the NWO there, Tony signs off. And Bash of the Beach 1997 is done. So final thoughts on Bash of the Beach 1997. The good through line of the show is all the intercard guys knew that this was going to be a big moment for them. Whether or not Rodman performed well or not is kind of material for them because this would get a lot of eyes on them in the outside wrestling world and just generally more of an audience. So a lot of guys, I feel, really stepped up and really did what they could to stand out. Mm -hmm. As noted, I thought all four people in the opening match had a little extra there. Even if their timing was a little off because they were trying so hard, they definitely over-delivered, I'd say. Dragon and Jericho also do quite well at that. It's just a shame the crowd doesn't seen respond as much as they should. Steiner's in the end of Japan match is still quite good, maybe not as good as we'd hoped. The Lucha tag match is just ridiculous in all the right ways. <laughs> Benoit Sullivan, like extreme counterpoint from this crazy flip match to a hard-hitting blood feud where they build up Sullivan with the underdog in his final match, ignoring, the, again, the A2 matches he had since. Yeah, In the moment, it does really well. Jarrett, for his part, gets a really good match out of Mongo. Jarrett and whoever helped put that together. Mongo does his, does what he can. As we discussed, the tag match is a real mixed bag because it really works as a, an angle giving you a match you really want to see and then taking it away from you. Piper and Flair's kind of a greatest hit, but it works fairly well. And then the main event is hyped to all hell as the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it is okay. I don't think it's quite as terrible as you are, but I giving it extra leeway, I guess, in my case. But mm-hmm. I absolutely I see, it. I absolutely see your take on that because it is very slow, and they do the most basic stuff with Rodman, and act like he just, you know, did a inverted four fifty. So I think I probably hold more against it than you because I write the uh, 
match recaps for it and the number of times I wrote Hogan goes to talk to Rodman or Savage goes to talk to Rodman or that kind of thing, I started holding that against the match. <laughs> no, that's perfectly fair. Taken as a match itself, it's not awful. No. It's just below average on the yeah. show, for sure. Agreed. This was quite a fun show up until the ending match, and honestly, that ending match was bad, but not the kind of bad that ruins a good show or drags it down much at all. Mm -hmm. It probably helped that the crowd actually maintained its energy throughout it, despite the action being slower. Yeah. They kind of helped elevate it a little bit above what it was. Of the eight other matches, most had something good to offer, whether it be lucha acrobatics, brutality, or just good character work. Whoever was responsible for laying out the matches tonight did a very good job, as even matches with weaker performers had good overall plots and some fun twists and turns. We only had two actual promos tonight, three if you count the brief clip of DDP talking on the interwebs, which I don't. No. I know I'll likely regret this next show because we always get promo overload whenever I say this, but I definitely could have used a few more. Maybe something for Flair Piper, a bit with Luger and the Giant building up the main event, or maybe a DDP reaction to Hennig's betrayal. Sure. Still, what we got was at least interesting and oddly entertaining. And hey, we had to have time to shield the hotline. Mm -hmm. Production had its good and bad points. We've got another strong set design tonight, and good use of graphics alongside beach-themed outfits, but the camera work had some quite poor angles and missed parts of matches, and the sound crew was not exactly on point. <laughs> no. Definitely appreciated the set being involved in Benoit and Sullivan's match especially as well. That seems to be a theme on shows. If WCW designs a nice set, some wrestler or another will be very interested in breaking parts of it. Maybe that's why they don't do nice sets that often. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But then again, this is WCW and being budget conscious is not their strong point. That is also true. The Tony Bobby Dusty plus occasional Tanae commentary team was fun as usual. I particularly liked their commentary for the Sullivan retirement angle as they really built up his career and it felt like a good send-off. Their performance does slip with their massively over-the-top praise of Rodman's performance in the main event, but they still did a good job getting match stories across and having fun discussions there and for the rest of the night. Still, it's a definite sign of the problem WCW commentary is going to have going forward, selling everything like it's the biggest and best ever seen even when it blatantly is not. Mm -hmm. Overall, while this had stronger moments and weaker moments, and definitely declined in quality towards the end, it was generally fun and quite an easy watch. It's a perfectly acceptable show that works to set up the angles that are going to carry WCW for the next few months. Mm -hmm. Match of the night and MVP. So Al, what is your match of the night? So thankfully, some good competition here. Jericho and Dragons are quite good. The Lucha Six-Man match is great. Benoit Sullivan, they tell a really good story, so I can appreciate that. Jared and Mago was way better than I thought it was going to be. The whole package of the tag match with Hall and Savage is quite good. For me, I think, if I'm thinking about matches I'm going to remember the most out of everything, I think it's a total package for the match that I don't have to sort of nitpick apart. I'd say for me, it is the Lucha six-man match. <laughs> it's, it's honestly, this feels like a really unique spectacle on a show that we don't get a lot of, so I really want to appreciate it when we get it. And it's quite fun. Plus, I had La Parca. That also helps. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for me, this is between the Lucha six-man tag and Dragon versus Jericho. The former is an absolutely amazing stunt spectacular, 
and the latter is a sharp, well-crafted story of two evenly matched performers. It is amazingly close. I think... I've been going back and forth on this all day. <laughs> I, I feel you. I yeah. used to write mine out. I just yeah, yeah. the end. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this to the six-man tag as well. As you pointed out, it's a brilliant performance, and it's also very different. Yes. I think we need to acknowledge that. You know, and the, and the fact that there's there's so many guys putting out so many creative spots all at once makes it an even more impressive achievement. There's so many uh, different parts to manage to that match that the fact that it all goes so smoothly is is really notable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Showstopper of a match. Absolutely. Uh, MVP? Sure. Bunch of people to quickly highlight. Mortis, because I feel like he... It seems like he definitely put a lot of that match together. Mm-hmm. A lot of like, more complex stuff. Chris Cannon, in general, never gets enough credit for what he did. Dragon and Jericho, even though they couldn't really win the crowd over for the most part, both were really impressed with their match. Everyone in this Lucha six-man match, varying degrees, was good. I mean, even even the weakest part for me, like which probably is Viano 4, he was like the power guy in the match. So he, he got dashed up between the dives, so even he had his part to play. Benoit and Sullivan both do really well with their match. Honestly, giving Jared a lot of credit for both his performance and really tying his match together quite well is impressive on its own, and he deserves credit for that. All involved to some degree with the tag match being hauled in Savage for DP and Hennig. Again, in the shortest condensed it is, they all did their parts very well. And honestly, going back to it, Savage being a key part in really making as much as they could get out of the tag match involving Rodman, he really deserves credit for that as well as a less overt part of that match, because he's not in the match, but without him, I can't imagine what happened. Yeah, he's clearly there to help keep Rodman on track, yeah. Exactly. And yes, I... And we're the Parker because he is the anchor of that match. <laughs> it's like it's almost two in those if I pick him, but I really enjoyed his performance there. He he was good. I, yeah, I would yeah. consider it an entirely fair pick, even if you weren't uh, a Leparka fanboy. Exactly. That's fair. I accept that. Hmm. It's a toughie. I think I think I'm gonna do my usual thing, which is where if I don't pick a match for match tonight, I want to highlight someone in it. So I think if I'm gonna pick between the two, I'd probably say Jericho, because. Even though his characters, he himself admits, is not what it to be, they will end up. They will end up be, you know, full on Chris Jericho heel with his crazy list and number of holds and all that. His actual entering performance is very smooth. He does risky spots that thankfully did not turn badly for him, like getting drop kicks in midair while upside down flipping, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So for me, of, of the two, I think I pick him. Okay. I'm choosing Kevin Sullivan. Okay. The man put on quite a brawl for his final match as a regular WCW performer, Mm -hmm. and he managed to draw genuine sympathy and emotion despite still playing the heel. And he did that right after the Lucha match. Mm -hmm. That is an achievement. That's fair. You'd expect that to be the biggest dead spot on the show. The shot of Sullivan finally leaving the ring, misty-eyed, is probably what's going to stick with me the most from this show. Oh, okay. And that wraps up our review of Bash at the Beach 1997. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Bash at the Beach 1998, like skinny dipping in the shark tank. That sounds singularly unpleasant. Yeah, all of that's a less bad, yeah. But at least it's less generic than the alternate tagline, somebody's going down. Unless down into the shark tank. Oh no, <gasps> stop them quick. Oh no. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Wow, I totally mistyped this one. Here's what I've got written. This is great. Rodman holds Luger, but Luger ducks, and Rodman hits Luger by mistake. It was late. <laughs> he, 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 Rodman used the dagger of time to fix his mistake. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm crying from that one. That was one of my better typos of recent memory.